Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast, where we explore the adventures, perspectives, and philosophies of world travelers. I am your host, Lee Thornquist, and thank you for listening. Ooh, people, we have got a good one today. I'm excited to share this with you all. If you are ready to explore some very fascinating and deep topics with one of the most interesting and open-minded people around, you have come to the right place. On today's episode, we are joined by Dane Thomas Bergman, who currently lives in Australia. Dane is a lifestyle enthusiast, a certified personal trainer, adventurist, and long-term world traveler, seeker of the extraordinary, and so much more. He is constantly on the search to make life better, more fulfilling, and more adventurous, something I think we'd all would like more of, yeah? At the core, Dane's message really promotes just being in love with your life and harnessing your passions and sharing them with the world. And he understands that none of this is something that just falls into your lap, something you got to work towards a little bit. After high school, Dane played three years in the Australian Rules Football League, and starting in 2008, he traveled for 10 years to nearly 40 countries across five continents. He worked along the way to fund his travels and has gone on some pretty incredible adventures, one of which was cycling around the entire country of Iceland. Funny enough, we do not even talk about this at all during our conversation, which says a lot considering how long we actually talked for. In Australia now, Dane tries to source his food locally as often as possible. This means he forages for veggies and berries and goes out and spearfishes in the ocean in order to catch his meals. Literally brings a spear out and catches the fish and only eats that fish. Dane was vegetarian for 18 months and then switched to vegan for the next 18 months. Uh, just recently, he introduced eggs and fish back into his diet, and I mean like two weeks ago as the date of this recording, um, and we'll discuss those reasons and why he made these changes and how it's affected him. Dane is constantly trying to push the envelope in all aspects of his life to make a positive impact in the health, happiness, and overall quality of life, of not just his, but of everyday people around the world. This can really be broken down into four main areas, which includes self, wealth or work, love, and community or your legacy. And he'll explain what these mean in more detail and how to improve upon them. He writes about many of these topics to help people learn and to make changes in their own lives on his website, which is called The Lifestyle Empire, which can be found at thelifestyleempire.com. From the website, the Lifestyle Empire Creed is to positively impact the lives of individuals and families by creating a resource and community that cultivates an optimal and successful lifestyle. The Lifestyle Empire aims to educate, inspire, and teach through firsthand experience and an ever-growing understanding of the world, while always remaining open to change and never set in our ways. As part of this empire, Dane is currently working on a 12-week online lifestyle warrior program, which will help men reinvent their physiques, their mindsets, and their lifestyle. And this will all be released in the coming months. 
Some of the other things we discuss include limiting beliefs and different forms of identity that we associate with and how to challenge or change these in order to build a better life, why you should always keep an open mind and be okay with changing your beliefs and opinions, how being a vegetarian and vegan for three years affected his overall life and physique and mindset and other areas, how different aspects of health, including nutrition, sleep, mentality, emotional, and physical play into your life, how to reevaluate everything and create the lifestyle you actually want to live. I know it's a crazy idea, but it can be done. And so, so much more. This is definitely the longest episode to date, but I promise that the conversation does not get stale. So stick with us. Hopefully you are able to take something away to help improve your life. And as always, if you want to jump around to what interests you most, you can do so by looking at the show notes and going to those timestamps. Speaking of show notes, you can find these and links to some of the things we reference at edgeofcomfort.com forward slash EOCP20. That's the number two zero. Also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, either through the app on your phone or iTunes on your computer. I really enjoy reading everyone's feedback, and it also helps new people discover these conversations. Just search for Edge of Comfort in Podcasts, click on Ratings and Reviews, and then write a review. If you need a step-by-step guide, you can find one at edgeofcomfort.com forward slash podcast dash review. Make sure to stick around at the end for the question of the episode. And thank you so, so much to Dane for being willing to share so much about his life and beliefs and being so open. And thank you for listening. And without further ado, everyone, let's go. Good morning. What's all the commotion? Wow. Are banana fish big? Same, same, but different. If I can't scuba, then what's this all been about? Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast with your host, Lee Thornquist. Dane, welcome to the show. Really happy to have you on today and uh, talk with you about some stuff. Um, I guess it is morning for you over in Australia, so good morning and uh, happy to have you on. Cheers, Lee. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. It is morning here and it's a, it's a beautiful sunny one as well, so loving what, that uh, Australian summer weather. What time did you get up today? Uh, I actually slept in a little bit this morning, so I didn't get up till 6.30 in the morning. I'm normally up around between 5 and 5.30, but uh, today, as I didn't have to work, I thought I'd, I'd just get up when my, my body wanted to, and that was 6.30. That is, <laughs> to hear that you say, I got to sleep in today, and that was 6.30 for you, that's quite impressive. I am, uh... I'm one of those uh, <laughs> super annoying morning people that just, <laughs> as soon as the sun's up, I'm ready to go. So it's got its pros, it's got its cons, but I, I definitely enjoy the mornings. That's impressive, yeah. I'm wired the exact opposite way, so <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to be better about that. But um, 
I do want to learn more about kind of your schedule and some of the your daily life and stuff. But before we get into that, I was checking out some of the some of your past adventures on Instagram and YouTube. And what, can you tell me a little bit about the land diving on Pentecost Island? Like for someone who's never seen this or has no idea what this is, can you just explain like what was going on when you saw that? Yeah, totally. So uh, that was earlier this year, and um, I was fortunate enough to to go on a cruise uh, with Silver Sea, who my brother actually works for. He's a marine biologist and uh, and a naturalist on board uh, with that company. So I got to go along for a um, I think it's called the Pearl of the Pacific or something like that. That's the name of the the cruise, and we actually went through Vanuatu. New Caledonia, and then up the east coast of Australia. So it was a phenomenal trip, but definitely one of the highlights was the um, the Pentecost Island land divers, which as a child growing up, I remember seeing it. I remember David Attenborough narrating in his beautiful voice about these, you know, this, like the, the primitive version of bungee jumping. And um, for people who aren't sure what it is, it's basically this huge structure, about 25 metres tall. It's completely um, hand-built. And what the Pentecost Islanders do is uh, coming into the yam harvest, they climb this structure and they, they jump off head first towards the ground with vines that they've selected tied to their feet. So these vines have like very little give. It's not like a bungee jump where you slowly go down and, you know, launch back up. It's just like head first straight down. And then you want to really hope that the vines are not going to snap for one, that it's the right length and that uh, you've timed to jump well. And um, the reason they do this is because – They've got uh, a belief that, um, you know, your mana, which is basically your, your energy, it resides in your head. And that's what they do is to have a good harvest as they jump off and they launch head force towards the ground. And they, they believe that the closer they can get their head to the ground, that will transfer their energy, their mana into the, into the soil. And that will bring about a, um, a bountiful yam harvest. So that was, uh, that was what went on. And it was, like dude edge of your seat i was sweating i was trying to film it all i was trying to record it and i was like i couldn't hold my camera steady because i was so nervous because it's just these guys just you know they might be up there for five minutes and they're doing their prayer and there's dance going on and all this it's, it's such a beautiful experience but it's like it's white knuckle stuff man there are i definitely don't think i'd be up there doing it <laughs> do any of them hit the ground like i i saw your pictures and the vines I mean, those do not look sturdy. Like, do they ever break? Do they ever actually fall, like, smack onto the ground or get injured? Yeah, they do. Um, I don't think there's been too many deaths lately. Obviously, they've been doing this for a long time, so they are they are good at it. And also, they start doing it from a very young age. So, you know, the children were jumping, and they were jumping from anywhere from 5 to 10, slowly working their way up until the very, very top um where they jump off but things certainly do go wrong and I, I remember back i think it was 1987 i heard that the queen um queen victoria went or queen elizabeth sorry went over there and someone actually died in that procession for her so you know i'm sure there has been deaths uh there was none with ours um thankfully there was an injury where actually the the all-star land diver who jumps a few times and uh, jumps from the top. He's he's known as like you know the, the best on the island, and therefore the world. But he um he was standing up there getting ready to go, and he was all tied in. And you know it's a bit of a process between each jump. And the little platform that he was on that sort of juts out from the main structure actually gave way, and he fell. And he sort of fell down feet first. But then as the vines kind of like shortened and grabbed him and flipped him around, he actually landed on the back of his head and his neck from about 15 meters. And it was like, 
it was brutal to watch and he knocked himself out he was a little bit you know shaken up for a while and it just put a whole like every all the music stopped all the dancers stopped we all freaked out and yeah it was very very um very very nervous moment but he was okay and then the 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 island elder came out and announced that he was he was okay and he was fine and they were going to continue on with the with the um the festival if you will or, or the procession because um you know they they're doing this they're not doing it for us they're doing it for the yam harvest so there's no reason to stop doing it and um they went on and this guy didn't jump anymore i did see him later on he was walking around a little bit dazed but his brother actually jumped because he wanted to jump in honor of of his brother so he went up to the very very top and he jumped off the 25 meter one and it was dude it was crazy like i was so nervous watching him jump off but it was a successful jump and he launched off from 25 meters head first down. I've actually got it on video and I'm, I'm actually editing those videos at the moment, but it's, um, yeah, dude, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. That is something else. Like what? So that's only happens once a year. Um, I'm not sure of the exact specifics. They might do it a couple of times a year. I know they do it for the yam harvest, um, or leading into the yam harvest. Um, but there's also, I, I read a few different things that, um, traditionally, it may have started, and I'm not sure about the the, uh, the validity of this, but this is another thing I heard that um, it originated because one of the the women that actually used to do it way like way way back in the day, and then it changed to a, a men's only thing. But the reason it was the women at the start is because um, one of the 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 men there was cheating on his wife, um, and she found out about it, and she actually tricked him into like you know, chasing her up this structure. And when she got up there, she pretended to commit suicide and she jumped off, but she had the vines tied to herself and he jumped off after her and she actually survived and he died. So that was one of the stories I heard about the, um, the origin of why it came about. And the other was the yam harvest. So I know now they might do it a couple of times a year and obviously with, with tourism, you know, they, they might be putting on some extra shows because you know there's the money involved in it but yeah i'm not sure if traditionally they only did it once a year or if it was a few more times but um yeah it's definitely you know if i was them i'd only want to do it once a year that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) that's so wild so did you did you and your brother just kind of get lucky with seeing this or did you specifically plan out like hey this happens at this time and we want to make sure we're able to see it yeah with my my brother's company um it was, or not his company, the company that he, that he works for, it was organized. Um, and I don't know if it was organized in terms of they'd put it on when we arrived, but we arrived when the fest, when the, uh, the performance was going on. So, um, we knew it was as part of the itinerary of the, of the cruise that we went on. And, um, it's a very small cruise. It's not like the big P and O cruises where you have, you know, 5,000 people and, and 45 decks of ship. It was, you know, it's still a big ship, but there was only 53 people that were actually on board the cruise. So it's more kind of, um, you know, high end, less people. Um, so, but you know, it's still, it still is a cruise, which it kind of is a bit of a weird thing, but yeah, it was, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it was, it was timed, but I don't think it was organized specifically for us, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure of the, uh, of the, the undergoings behind all the organization. Yeah. Either way, what a cool thing to be able to witness. Yeah, man, it was it was insane. It was crazy. And it was, I was I'm so glad that I got to witness it and and to see it in real life after watching it on on Nat Geo as a child and just thinking that those dudes were insane. But yeah, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so clearly, I mean, you've obviously seen a lot and traveled pretty extensively, and uh, just mm-hmm. from the, some of the things I've been able to research and look at. Um, but I'm curious, like, 
can you just tell me a little bit more about your backstory and like where you grew up and kind of how you've got to where you are now and living in Australia? Obviously, I know that's a pretty wide range, but <laughs> maybe the the short to medium version. Yeah, absolutely, dude. I'll give you the, the point to point. No one's got time <laughs> for the last story anyway, or really cares. But um, yeah, I, I grew up in Australia and we moved around a lot. My dad was involved with um, a lot of um, Aboriginal organizations in the in the north of Australia. So we sort of, we a lot of contract work. So I think I went to five uh, primary schools in four different states. So always moving around as a child. And then after I graduated high school, um, I didn't want to go to university because um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I just felt that 13 years of school was enough for, you know, a 17 year old person. <laughs> and um, I just wanted to get out and, uh, and head back up to the north of Australia. And for all of high school, I'd been down in, in the south of Australia in, in a town called Ballarat, which is a bit more kind of, you know, civilized, if you will, compared to the outback of Australia. And I just really had this calling to get up north and um, be closer to my dad, who was living up in the top end of Australia. So at 18, I moved up there and spent the next three years playing Australian rules football. Um, and I kind of played that all around Australia on different contracts. And then uh, at 21, I headed overseas for the first time to Thailand, which I think you might have been to Thailand. I know you went through a lot of Asia. Yeah, I've been to Thailand. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's just, it's the perfect kind of like, you know, introduction to traveling. It's so catered to backpack backpacking over there and just getting around. And I was over there for a month and I um, just fell in love with, with the people and travel and the experience and, and everything that comes with, you know, with traveling. And sort of after that, I decided that I wanted to spend a bit of my, uh, a bit of my time on actually trying to travel and see the world. So that's what I did. And the next you know, to cut a long story short, the next 10 years, I basically dedicated my life to to travel and had that as the, my main priority. And I think I traveled around to, I went to 39 countries across five different continents and um, worked as well throughout the whole time and spent a lot of time in Vancouver and Canada. I lived there for six years and I lived in Denmark and traveled through Europe and lived in Peru for a while and through South America. And yeah, just sort of tried to you know, I've definitely got the list of I want to I want to see every country in the world, and that is a lifetime goal for me. But I don't want to do it all in, you know, the shortest amount of time possible. So I really want to keep uh, keep exploring and keep seeing as much as I can, and and do it sort of on my own timeline rather than just trying to you know check off all the lists, all the uh, all the box on the list. Sorry, but um, yeah. And then after that, I sort of uh. Well, not after that, but now I've just moved back to Australia. I moved back to Australia a year ago after 10 years, basically overseas for the majority of the time. And um, I live on the east coast of Australia in a little town called Lennox Head, which is kind of near the Gold Coast, which a few people might know a bit better. And yeah, just living here on the east coast of Australia. I'm back over here now building my uh, building my program and online business and, and surfing and running and spearfishing and just, just uh, planning the next adventure, buddy. <laughs> Always planning. <laughs> Always planning, dude. Always planning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm really curious on hearing more about this program and like just how you came to be so driven and interested in like optimizing your performance and pushing yourself. And um, I mean that I have a lot of different questions on these areas, but like, mm -hmm. where did this drive originally come from? Is this something that you were working on like constantly while traveling, which I know is kind of difficult when you're kind of a nomad and living in many different places and different jobs. Like when did you start realizing like, 
I need to be better. I, I can be better and, and ways to do this. Yeah, I guess for me, like I, I was an athlete my whole life. I was very um, heavy into athletics and, and track and cross country. Um, and also Australian rules football. I played at a semi-professional level here in Australia. So I, I was always performance orientated and I always wanted to be better, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, longer, all that sort of stuff. And that sort of comes from, you know, the competitive nature of wanting to, you know, to win and to succeed and to perform in sort of whatever I was doing. So that's always been an underlying kind of principle for me, if you will. Um, and then as I got into my twenties, um, and my later twenties, I stopped playing, uh, I stopped playing kind of semi-professional football and started playing it around Australia more as, and coaching and everything like that and enjoyed it. But for me, it was, it just came down to the want to, to experience more and, and be more and do more. And I, you know, that's kind of, I feel kind of cliche saying that cause I feel like everybody says they want to do more and be more, but it just comes down to not wanting to to leave anything on the table and just kind of figure out or find out what you are capable of. Um, and so for me, like that's, that's normally in, in performance pursuits and whether it's, whether it's running or whether it's surfing or spearfishing and freediving, um, climbing mountains, anything, you know, it's kind of just, you want to see how high you can go or how far you can go or, you know, just figure out exactly what you're capable of doing. And I find that every time you do something that, that furthers what you thought you were, you know, then it opens up the next level kind of like a game. You're like, Oh, I can actually go one bit further and do one thing more. And yeah, so that was kind of the desire for me and um, being heavily involved in athletics and everything like that and, and gym and performance based stuff. I was, I was always researching myself anyway, and I was always trying to figure out little different hacks and tricks. And so I'd, um, I'd start um, you know, helping my friends out with their programming and everything like that. And then, the next sort of step seemed to be to go and get my um, certification in personal training so I could actually get a more in-depth understanding of the things that I was kind of, you know, preaching. Um, so I did that about five, six years ago and got into personal training. And yeah, and then from there, it's sort of, I started a website yeah, probably, probably about five years ago, just as I was getting certified. Um, and it was called Train Your Lifestyle. And I loved the idea behind it. Like lifestyle has always been my sort of big thing. Um, so the idea of bringing fitness into that is sort of where the, the train your lifestyle came in and I, I really enjoyed it. It was a great blog. Um, I guess it was a failure in terms of, uh, you know, the longevity of it, but you know, most things you start for the first time <laughs> usually are, it's more of a learning experience, I think, but, um, I loved it, but I, I sort of transferred out of, um, the train your lifestyle into my current, my current blog and sort of movement, if you will. And that's called the lifestyle empire. And that kind of encapsulated a lot more than what I wanted. Um, Train Your Lifestyle was very performance and fitness orientated, which I thought was a big part, but it was only one part of the whole sort of, you know, holistic approach to what I think lifestyle should pertain to. So, yeah, the Lifestyle Empire was born and it was a personal blog and I sort of did it as I was traveling and gave some advice on what I learned on the road and different tips and tricks and everything like that and different things I'd learned through the fitness community and and in, in, yeah, in relationships and all that sort of stuff that I just sort of found that the things that I was learning and trying to expand my knowledge on, I thought I'd just share them. And that was sort of, that was sort of how it all began, mate. So you said that lifestyle or not lifestyle, um, like fitness was only one equation of the kind of lifestyle and optimizing that. So what are some of the other areas that now, um, the lifestyle empire focuses on as well? 
Yeah, so I, I've like gone back and forth with these so many times because I always come up with something new and I'm like, oh, maybe that should incorporate it. But I guess if I if I looked at the four core principles of what the lifestyle empire um, you know, entails, um, I broke it down into the four quadrants. And that for me is self, which is basically mind, body and soul. And that's the betterment of, of you and who you are and what you want to do and everything like that. Um, and then the next one for me was wealth or work because it's such a big part of your life. And this was a big one for me because I battled so long with the idea of the relationship I had with money. And I still sort of go through this is like, I always believed that I didn't need money. And, you know, I was kind of raised in a poorer family. So the idea of the necessity for money was kind of like, you know, money was kind of the root of all evil. And so I had this sort of weird connotation with money. But, you know, here I was working 40, 50, 60 hours a week in, in to earn money. So I just realized it was an important part of life that we had to do and it, it gives us options. So that sort of became the next leg for me and it can be called wealth, it can be called money, it can be called work, whatever, you know, career. It was just basically what you're going to dedicate your life to in order to to earn money to do the things you want to do and be with the people you want to be. So that was the second leg that I brought in. Uh, the next one I call love and that's all basically it's human connection, relationships, uh, family, friends, intimate, everything like that. So that's the other area that I, I, I focus on improving and understanding and trying to figure out. And that's a tangled web sometimes. Um, and then uh, the last one is community, or le- I call it legacy. And that basically is the impact that you're going to have while you're on the planet, the the footprint you're going to leave behind after you, the community you're building and sharing basically everything you've learned. So they're the sort of the four areas of life that I've distilled it down to. And uh, yeah, try to try to work on improving and sharing and figuring out as I as I go along as much as I can. What were some of the other areas that you were battling with trying to include or not include? Um, not that I was battling with them. It was just like I'd come up with a different name sort of for them and I was like, oh, where does that fit? So one for me was like it was travel and adventure because that's such a big part of my life. And I'm like, well, where does that fit in? Is that like is that legacy because you go out and you, you travel? Or I'm like, is that more like is that a self thing? Does it go into the self area? But I'm like it doesn't really fit under mind, body, or soul. I'm like where did it go in there? So – for me, I was, you know, I had, I think I had seven categories at the start and I was just like, oh, there's just too many. There's too many things to work on in a day. And I just, I like the idea of keeping it simple as, you know, if I could have one, I'd have one, <laughs> but it just, I can't, I can't put it under, I guess under one, it's just called life, I guess is, is the one thing, but you know, to sort of, to branch it down is, is those ones, but yeah, travel, adventure, movement, all these different things. And kind of just subcategories, I guess it was, is trying to figure out if it should be a full category in the in the blog space or in my head and everything like that. But yeah, they were, they were the four that I, I brought it down to. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. You know, I could call it, you know, we can call it whatever we want. It's just, if you're working on the things that you want to improve on, then it doesn't matter what they're called, dude. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so with love, cause I, I remember seeing one of your posts about like how you, you uh, seek really raw and like true connection with people, but, like people are almost frightened by that. They're scared by that. And you said even you're scared by that sometimes. Can you expand on like what you meant by this and kind of that raw connection with people? Yeah. In, in that area, I found that the best way to communicate, to, to build a relationship, to build trust is through brutal honesty and, and like radical open-mindedness and vulnerability. And it's so, it seems so obvious, but it's also so, you know, backwards as well. Cause you're like, Oh, if I, if I really 
you know, share my thoughts and my heart and, and everything like this, then people are going to judge me and they're going to think I'm a pussy or I'm this, this, this and this. But really when you do that and every single time that I've gone and done that, whether it's online or it's, you know, in a one-on-one conversation, that's when the actual connection really, really takes the next level. And that's when it deepens. And that's when you get to, you know, it, it almost allows the environment for people who have the same feelings as you, or maybe other feelings that they're, they're worried about voicing, it gives them permission to do it and it gives them a safe environment. So for me, that's something I'm, I'm so conscious about in my, in my relationships in life and basically in anything. Like I just, I feel like the quicker you can get to the deep, like nitty gritty stuff, man, it's just, it's so much better. Like, you know, talking about the weather is great, but let's talk about <laughs> freaking reality and UFOs and all this sort of shit. And let's get deep and talk about love and, you know, so that's, that's where I've gotten. Yeah, definitely. The more vulnerable that I've been and the more open I've been, the better response and connection from, uh, from other people I've had. So that's something that I'm always working on and something that, you know, I'd love to be able to just lay it all out. And I, I sort of feel like I have, but then I'm like, no, you're still holding bits back. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of like chipping away at the, uh, at the stone, mate. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's hard to do to just, bare your soul to the world especially on social media or on your website or anything because it's there in writing for judgment like <laughs> it is and the, the crazy part is as well is you know shit changes and values changes and perspectives they change so you know once you get you know I've, I've definitely i've written a lot of stuff where that i was very passionate about and but believed wholeheartedly at the time that it was the right thing in the right way or whatever it was and then six months 12 months two years, 10 years later on, I'm like, Oh, I don't believe that anymore. Like I actually think that is, you know, that's, I'm actually feeling the opposite to that now or, you know, so, but that's, that's what it's all about. You know, if we were, I think the only way to really be wrong is to, is to draw a line in the sand and and pick a side and say, I am this and I can never be that. So, you know, and forget about it. And I find that a lot of society does that, whether it's with, um, you know, the groups they go in or religions or everything like that. For me, it's like, just belonging to nothing is the best way and you know not 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 belonging to nothing but just you know not picking a side just staying open-minded and say you know what for now this is what i believe and this is what i'm learning and this is what i understand but you know next year this might be completely different and being okay to change and being open to uh you know sort of the ever-evolving you know adaptions that take place in life yeah that's so true it's like you look back at what was important to you or what you thought about certain things like even six months ago or a year ago and longer and just like, wow, how, how did I think that at that time? Like now I know yeah. this and it's so different. Exactly. And sometimes it's cringeworthy. You look at, <laughs> I look at some of the stuff I wrote five years ago and I'm just like, Oh God, is that what I was thinking? And then, you know, but it's, it's no different. You think, I think back to who I was as, as a 21 year old and I'm just like, Oh God, I'm so glad that I've, you know, that I've changed. And I, I feel like there's such a big, a big pressure in society and people say, and this is obviously meant wholeheartedly by people, um, you know, where they tell you, you know, never change, stay the way you are, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. And, you know, that that's wrong because, you know, if I was the same person I was when I was 21, then, you know, I'd be a little drunk party animal that just didn't really give a shit. And, you know, I'm so glad that I developed. So I think that, you know, losing yourself is so important and, and leaving who you were in the past is, is so important, you know, and obviously learning from those things and taking forward the parts that you want to, but you know, I'm all about change, dude. I reckon you should always just strive to change and become whoever the hell you want to become. So 
Yeah, I I hate that advice too. Like, oh, you're you're great the way you are. It never changed. Like like you said, it's like, well, in five years that might be totally different if you're still doing the same shit. So yeah, and if you're not like like, what have you been doing for five years? <laughs> <laughs> Just sitting around reading the same books and talking to the same people. So no, it's yeah, constant. You know, lifelong learning is such an important thing in in life and. You know, the more you learn, I feel like the more you change and the more you realize you're wrong. And, um, you know, Socrates said, you know, 2000 years ago that, um, all I know is I know nothing. That's so freaking true, dude. I realize more and more every day, the things I know is just, you know, next year I'm like, God, I was so wrong in that, <laughs> that frame of mind, but you know, yeah. that's what it's all about. Uh, I think that's something that you really learn as you learn more and go and travel. It's like, you think you know stuff, and then you go do that, and you're like, wow, I actually do not know anything. Like, <laughs> just really opens yeah. up your mind. Yeah, you'll start looking outside the little, the bubble that you grew up in, and, you know, the belief systems and everything that were, that were programmed into you just by, just by who you were brought up around, and the community you were brought up in, and the school you went to, and the people you hung out with, and then, you know, we, we spoke earlier about your travels, and how you, you know, you started to learn so much and every, you started to see these different things. And when you went through Asia, you know, it just, it, it changes your perspective of what is normal in the world or what is right and what is wrong. And, you know, it, it allows you to, you know, almost remove, you know, the rose colored glasses I find that you sort of grew up in and you're like, fuck, there's so many different beliefs and traditions and cultures and history and, and foods and, and everything like that, that travel, travel exposes you to and it's just it's such a beautiful thing and in in my opinion it's the best it's the best educator and and teacher and healer and mentor that that anyone can have is is to go out and travel and really sort of expose themselves to the the beauty and the the sometimes cruelness of the world as well why i yeah i saw i forget if it was on an instagram poster in one of your posts on your website where you said, yeah, I think travel is one of the greatest healers and educators. What do you mean by healer in that aspect? So for me personally, um, it came about after um, the death of my father. And my dad died really suddenly when I was 22, just as I'd moved over to Canada. And um, I flew, I got the phone call, flew home, um, got to spend two days with him, and then he passed away. So as a 22-year-old, you know, two weeks later, I went back to Canada. I was living there with my girlfriend at the time. Um, but you know, I didn't really have any family or friends. I, I didn't really know anyone outside of my girlfriend and her family there. So I pretty much just got on with life and kind of acted like nothing had happened, even though I had this, you know, this sadness and this resistance in my life, in my mind. Um, you know, and for me, the way of dealing with that was getting fucking wasted and being the party boy and all this sort of stuff, you know, and just kind of numbing yourself to the, the, the truth of what had actually happened. And I did that for a long time. And after about 18 months, you know, of doing this, the relationship had fallen apart and I was just like, I got to go, I got to go travel. And so for me, having the time to be bored with your thoughts as well, which is, is an important thing about travel because a lot of travel is waiting <laughs> and sitting on buses and on planes for three days. So you get a lot of time to not be distracted by the busyness of life. And for me, that really allowed me to process the death of my dad. So, you know, it allowed me to, it allowed me to work through the grievance process and go from, you know, anger and denial and resentment into a level of acceptance. And I still remember the exact moment where I was and I was living in Utila 
which is in um, a little island off the coast of Honduras in the Caribbean. Um, and I was sitting out the front of my little my little cheap sort of shanty house that I lived in there for a few months. And I was just sitting on the balcony and having a beer and the sun was setting and I was looking up. That's, you know, it's kind of cliche, but I was just looking up and I was thinking and I was doing what I needed to do. And that was to to process these these feelings I had inside. And I had a bit of a cry and and then I just started sort of smiling and laughing. And it was that moment that I'd know that I knew that I'd gone, that I'd worked through the grievance process and I'd got to that level of acceptance that that dad was dead and that I'd never see him again. But I was okay with it now. And I stopped mourning his death and started celebrating his life. And for me, that is why travel is the greatest healer because you know, talking to people helps, reading books helps, watching YouTube videos helps. But until you actually get out and spend the time working through these emotions um, and fucked up thoughts and whatnot that you're going through, you know, it's kind of, I feel like it's just the process is being delayed and, and, uh, and travel just gives you that time. It gives you that time and it gives you that perspective and it introduces you to things that, you know, that allow you to change your perception of, of an incident or, or anything like that. Yeah, man, I'm sorry to hear that's tough. Like, you know, there's, in life with anything like there's no running away through something or no running away from something like that like no matter what it is it, like if it's something important to you you got to face it one day or the other like <laughs> exactly right dude exactly right and you know there's i always say to people you know when they're going through a loss and um you know i kind of I, I guess i don't give my advice or anything like that but i just i'm just there as a as a shoulder if they need it or an ear but um for me now it's got to the point of I've had, I've had a bit of loss and I've had other losses and I've, I've got that perspective now of understanding. And I know that, you know, you can spend 18 months grieving or you can spend 10 years grieving, you know, or you can, you can really work through this process a lot faster. And um, I remember Tony Robbins said years ago when I first heard it, I didn't really understand it until, until recently, the last couple of years, but he said that five years, 10 years, two seconds, the decision you make to accept something is the same decision no matter what. It's how much time you want to spend leading up to that decision that will allow you to work through it. So now, you know, I try to – I spend the time that I need to grieving and, and understanding and learning and then it's like, all right, let's get to this decision of acceptance and, and, and you know, and that just allows me to – not to move on. I don't think that's the right word, but it, it allows me to see things more clearly and if I think about, you know, my personal example with my dad, if he was looking down or, you know, whatever you want to think of, what would he want me to do? And would he want me to be grieving every day or would he want me to be celebrating his life and being happy and living out my life, you know, in, in honor of what he taught me and everything like that. So for me, it's like, I try to get to that decision because I think it's, it's the best and I try to get there as quick as possible now. And, you know, travel certainly does help fast track that, that process. So, yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. Like, just to have that open acceptance and open mind and just to something that can like that, that's so terrible. It's to have the courage to just be like, Hey, you know, this, this is life and got to move on. And not, it's tough to, it's tough. Yeah, it's, it's you, hard. you get that guilt, you get that guilt too, because like, you know, in, in your mind, like you think about it when, when someone passes away or you have a loss in your life, you know, if you are out smiling and having a great time the next day, people are just like, what the fuck, you know, like, how could you do that? You're thoughtless, you're heartless, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then there's the, the, I had this big feeling of guilt after my dad passed away and, 
where it was like, I shouldn't be happy and I shouldn't be laughing and I shouldn't be enjoying life because my dad's dead. And, you know, you'll never see your dad again. How can you, how can you be smiling and happy and enjoying time? You know, so there's this guilt that comes along with the, you know, the joy after death, if you will, you know, or if that's the right term, I don't know, but you know, so, and then when you fast track it, there's that guilt that comes well, cause you're like, shit, you know, like, shouldn't I still feel sad or shouldn't I still, why should I be this happy this soon? You know? So, and it's just totally, you just have to go back and, and, and sort of remove yourself from the emotional cloud of, of what's going on and sort of, you know, objectively look down at the situation. And that, that really helps me to move through it. And, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean I'm going to go out, you know, skipping down the street if I have a friend pass away or anything like that, but I'm definitely going to, you know, spend, spend the time mourning and being upset and then I'm going to honor their life or, you know, as much as I can by, by celebrating their life. Um, yeah. And that's kind of, and travel really helps me to, to link that back to the question of, of why I think that travel is such a great healer. Yeah. It, it's, there's no set time for grievance, you know. <laughs> exactly, dude. Exactly. There's no rules on that. <laughs> yeah. If it needs to take 10 years, it takes 10 years. It needs to take 10 minutes, it takes 10 minutes. And, you know, there's no right or wrong. It's just you just got to make that decision yourself and, and, and live, consciously live to that, you know, to that level or standard or whatever you want to call it and do the best you can. That's it. Yeah. So, okay, moving on a little bit. I mean, yeah, that's that's true, though. I mean, I'm yeah. Sorry, I'm still thinking about this. Just like, mm-hmm. it, yeah, you f- that guilt you feel for like being happy. It's so yeah, such a twisted emotion. Like, clearly, you don't want this to sidetrack your whole life and to like not hold you back, but prevent you from living as great as you can and optimizing your life. And obviously, you're going to grieve, but you know, feeling that guilt, like to move on from that is all, it's such a twisted thing. Yeah. It is, dude. It's so weird. And, you know, obviously there's the societal guilt you feel because you're like, shit, what are people going to think if I'm, if I'm out happy and celebrating, even though I've had this loss. And then there's that personal one. But for me, it's just always, it's, it's going back to what, what I would want my friends and family to do if I passed away or if something happened. And then I also, I have to turn it back around to them and I'm like, what would, you know, what would they want me to be doing right now in this situation? And, you know, very, very rarely do I have an incident where I'm like, oh, they'd want me to be upset and crying and, and miserable and, and, and mourning. And so once, once I get that and I can understand it and I can, I can remove any of the other sort of subjective emotional feelings from it, then it's like, all right, this is what my dad would want. This is what my uncle would want, my cousin, you know, these people that have passed away in my life. Um, and once I can sort of get that clarity, then it makes it a little bit easier to, to push aside the guilt that, that comes with it and, and then, um, yeah, and then take the next step. So back to some of the things we were talking about with just constant changing in life mm-hmm. and whether that's mindset and body or whatever, um, I'm very interested to hear a little bit about your experience when I think you were vegan for 18 months and vegetarian for like 18 months before that. Um, But you've recently started consuming animals. I don't know if that's just fish or other animals in whole that you only source yourself. Um, But 
let's talk about this period of your life where you were strictly vegetarian or strictly vegan. Like, what caused you to make these decisions to do that? And, like, what was your diet like beforehand? And how did you make this change? Yeah, totally, dude. And let me just jump in here. Like, this is such a touchy issue in <laughs> in society these days. It's like you can't you can't say anything without like being wrong or being accused of this. So, like personally, I don't give a fuck what people do. Like, eat what you want. You know, everything like that. All all I say is, be conscious about what you're doing. Be aware of what you're doing, and make a conscious decision from there. And whatever that decision is, that's up to you. So do whatever you want, and it doesn't bother me at all. And I don't think one's more right than the other. But just having that ability to be conscious of what's happening and the impact you have, and then make a decision out of that, rather than just you know this unconscious consumption of everything around us which most of the freaking world does these days i feel so yeah there we go i don't care what you do i'm not saying one's more right than the other but personally uh my story i was um i ate basically anything i was your typical athlete you know eat whatever burn it off run as hard as you can lift blah 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 eat anything and i still ate healthy you know i didn't eat i didn't eat takeout all the time my claim to fame is I haven't eaten McDonald's in 16 years. This October it was, so you know, you know, I wasn't. Yeah, that's that's one of my that's my claim to fame, dude. <laughs> but um, that's nothing else. So, you know, interviews over. But um, no, I uh, yeah. So, but I still ate. You know, I just ate anything. I didn't really mind. To me, it was just fuel. I just got it in. I burnt it off, and that was it. Um, and then through personal training and understanding nutrition a little bit more, I started to you know, realize the importance of fueling with the right thing. So for me, um, initially I went vegetarian, if you will, by default. Um, and it was purely out of an environmental standpoint. And I just sort of came to understand the environmental impact that, um, agriculture, especially, uh, animal agriculture was having on the environment. So for me, I was just like, all right, I'm not going to eat farmed animals anymore. So I just eliminated them straight out of my life. I, I was a big hunter and a big spear fisherman, a fisherman, spear fisherman growing up. So I still wanted to incorporate that. But um, as I was living in Canada, I wasn't doing it too much. Um, so basically, I was vegetarian by default because I, you know, no restaurant serves wild game, at least in Vancouver that I was aware of. So, um, yeah, I did that for 18 months and then through more research and how I was feeling and everything, um, and through like health implications, I started to eliminate dairy out of it a little bit more because I was still eating ice cream, like all good vegetarians do. And then, um, I, yeah. And then for me, finally to go vegan after 18 months, it was, it was an ethical standpoint and I could no longer justify the, the slaughter of an animal at all, whether it was by my hands or by somebody else's, for my sustenance, um, and that came about basically in a, you know, it was years of deliberation going back and forth. But the one instant was was the movie, the documentary Earthlings, and I don't know if you've seen that or not, but it's still to this day the most violent movie I've ever seen in my life, and it's all real footage, um, and it's based on factory farming and. Uh, scientific testing and companionship and clothing and the abuse that humans have on you know the animal kingdom so and that just you know it wiped me off the face of the planet i was just like god i cannot do this anymore um so yeah and that's that instance i i went vegan and um the next 18 months up until about six weeks ago actually i was um strict vegan and honestly dude i loved it i 
I didn't really have any health implications at the start. Like I felt phenomenal. I, I lost body fat, which was, you know, kind of hard for me to do anyway because I was pretty low. I think I dropped from 10% down to about eight. I lost a lot of water retention. Um, I had some strength gains, which, you know, I don't think resulted from being vegan, but I think the 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 anti-inflammatory nature of a vegan diet, a whole food plant-based diet, allowed me to, um, you know, repair quicker and replenish quicker. So, you know, I had strength increases with my bench press and everything like that and different goals that I was working out towards. Um, I felt more connected to nature and I felt more, um, wholesome in the way that I was living my life. So it was actually, it was a really beautiful experience for me to, to go through veganism for the whole time. And I loved it. And I was definitely, um, I wouldn't say I was an advocate for veganism. I spoke my, my mind as I do. And I, I, I told people if they asked, but I definitely wasn't out, you know, um, being, you know, activism or anything like that. Because as I said earlier, you know, I think people should do what they want to do. But if people like what I'm doing and they want to ask a question, then I'll, then I'll answer honestly. So that was my approach to it. But, um, yeah, that kind of came to an end for me about, about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. And the reasoning for that was, um, I started, there was two big things for me that were kind of coming about. And for the last six months I was kind of, I wasn't satisfied with how I was eating anymore. And, I wasn't getting that satiation that you get from like a big, you know, that I, that I used to get from a big barbecued steak or from a, from a fish that I'd caught or something like that. I wasn't getting that. I was full cause I'd eat a shitload of food, but I wasn't like, I don't know what the word is. I think, yeah, satisfied is the word. I was just, I was just lacking that in my life. So, but, um, I kind of put it off for six months and put it down to the fact that, you know, I can be pretty routine in what I eat and, you know, I just need to get the variety changed up. And I did that and you know, it kind of worked a little bit, but I still wasn't getting that satiation that, that I was after. Um, and then about three, three months ago, I started to get a little bit of symptoms with my, with my vision. I started to get a little bit of myopia, which is kind of short-sightedness. And that definitely goes hand in hand with, you know, working online and, you know, social media and, you know, all this, having this short focal length of your vision for a lot of time, especially when I'm designing my program. But, um, I started, you know, sort of researching myopia and the things that it was related to. And I started bringing in all these different exercises to change my focal length. And it got to the point where I was, um, every 15 minutes when I worked during the day on my computer, my alarm would go off and I'd go outside and I'd do my focal lengthening exercises and I'd look off into the distance and I'd stretch my eyes and all this sort of stuff, which I actually enjoyed doing, to tell you the truth. It was a good way because I, I fucking hate sitting down. <laughs> so being able to get up every 15 minutes worked really, really well for me. But it didn't get rid of the myopia and it kind of just like controlled it a little bit. It made it a bit better, but it didn't improve anything. And come come sunset, and if I'd had a big day on the computer, you know, I was blind as a bat beyond about 10 feet. It was just everything was blurry. I couldn't read signs from... I couldn't read what the name of a sign of a road was and everything like that. So, and I've had phenomenal vision, you know, my whole life. Um, and then the day came where about six weeks ago where, um, I'd had this, I, what had I done? I'd, I'd started spearfishing and, and fishing again at this point. And that sort of come as, as the, as a desire to want to source my own sustenance and this feeling of needing satiation and this, this understanding of, of you know the, the history of, of hunting and fishing and hunting and gathering in you know in our in our past life so i decided to reintroduce that anyway but i still um, wasn't doing any farmed animals at all um and i finished a workout and it was all well and good but i was had 
I just had like this desire in my stomach, not even like a desire, like this deep guttural command to eat eggs. It was so weird. I hadn't eaten in three years. I hadn't eaten a freaking egg and it wasn't like I wanted steak. It wasn't bacon. It was eggs. It was like I needed egg and I like fought it for an hour and I didn't want to do it. Cause I'm like, no, that's farmed animals. I can't do it. I'm already, I'm already like trying to get my head around hunting and spearfishing again. So I battled it for like an hour. And then finally I was just like, shut up, do what your body's telling you, put your morals aside and go and eat some eggs. So I went down and bought some eggs. They were great. They were satiating. I, you know, it was a phenomenal omelet. I'll never forget it. <laughs> to be honest, like it was, it was, it was the satiation that I was really craving. But besides that, the crazy thing was, a few hours later, I got into my program and started working. Yeah, I went outside after 15 minutes, and everything was in focus, which had never really happened for me in the last few months since I'd been struggling with this myopia. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of weird, and I didn't really understand why it was, but I was intrigued. So I did a bit of experimentation, and I went inside and I didn't take a break every 15 minutes. I actually stayed working for two hours straight and I didn't go outside of my room. I didn't look beyond the walls of my room. And then I went back outside um, after two hours and things were a little bit blurry for the first second. But after that, everything was in focus again, near, far, you know, intermediate, everything was in focus, which had not happened in months for me. So I was really blown away and I went inside and I Googled, um, you know, uh, nutritional deficiencies, um, correlating with, um, with vision impairment. And the thing that came up first was vitamin A. And I know that vegans are notoriously low in vitamin A. And even though you can get that from a lot of cruciferous vegetables and everything, it's, it's a less sort of bioavailable, um, you know, source for, for humans. And I was even supplementing with vitamin A, um, synthetic vitamin A, um, that I'd take two times a day for the last three months and nothing was really improving. And then, that day, as I said, I ate the eggs and my vision was phenomenal. And it might be complete correlation, but I don't know. And so I checked out the most bio, I Googled, you know, what is the most bioavailable source of vitamin A? And the first thing that came up was egg yolks and fish. And that was just like, I was just like, what? Like, how can that, how can that be? The fact that I had this, this crazy, crazy command, like guttural command from my body to eat eggs eat eggs specifically. And then later that day, my vision had improved so much on, on everything that I'd, you know, that I'd been dealing with the last three months. And it was just too big a correlation for me to ignore. Um, yeah. So then that was sort of where I was at. And I decided after that, that I needed to look more into veganism and, and not just the, the benefits of it. Cause I'd obviously reaped a lot of the benefits in veganism, but I had to give it, you know, have an unbiased viewpoint and really look into veganism and the history behind it and the benefits and also the detriments of, of eating a, a purely plant-based diet. And so that's what I did. And I wrote that article on it. And yeah, I decided that for me, veganism had played its sort of part out in my life, at least at this moment. Um, and that I was, I'd already reintroduced hunting and spearfishing and I still sort of don't like the idea of buying farmed eggs, but, um, you know, I try to, I do honestly try and get the most, even though I don't want to say ethically because it's still a farmed animal, I don't really agree with it. You know, it's just the health implication that was coming with, with not eating it was just, it was too big to, for me to ignore. So I am consuming eggs at the moment, which I'm trying to figure a way around. If you know another way to do it, please let me know. Or, you know, short of having eggs in my chickens in my backyard, which I'd want to do at some stage, but where I live at the moment doesn't really pertain to that. So <laughs> that's so crazy. Have 
Have you ever heard of anything like that happening before or like since that's happened to you? Have you heard of other people where that's been an issue? Like I've never heard of such a strange correlation like that. Yeah, I, I have now. Obviously, you know, you've got this whole like cognitive bias that goes on because once something happens to you, you start looking for it, you know, and with the World Wide Web, you can find anything online. So <laughs> there's a there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of people, you know, there's a lot of, I went into a lot in my article about the, the long-term ramifications of veganism and some people, you know, you know, they, they live 30, 40, 50 years as vegans and they're completely fine. Some people do it for three weeks and, you know, they, they really, really struggle. So I think it's got a lot to do with your 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 heritage and your genetic makeup in terms of where you know where your ancestors resided and for me you know I did my 23andMe um, genetic testing and I'm I've got 89% sort of Irish blood 9% Swedish Norwegian so I've got that real north northern European which is very meat heavy and if you look back into the Viking the Vikings you know it's very meat egg dairy heavy so maybe I'm more susceptible to it but you know, it took 18 months for it to, to happen. And there is a, a lot of evidence of vision impairment and hearing impairment and, and dental impairment that comes with a vegan diet. But then there's, for every, you know, negative article, there's there's one that said my vision improved and everything like that. So I think it's so individual that it's so hard to say, you know, if it was just a correlation in, in my life and my time and what I'd been eating and, and the amount of training I was doing. But it was just such a big improvement so rapidly that I just couldn't ignore it. And honestly, since then, I, I have zero problem with my vision. My vision is as good as it was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Like I don't, I don't, unless I spend 10 hours on a computer in a day, which, you know, which when anyone does it, their vision is going to be blurry when they start going back to looking at it further. But it was just, it's such a big turnaround that I, I can't ignore it. So yeah, eggs are, eggs are back in the diet for the moment. <laughs> That's it, like you said, diet is such an individual thing and I feel like a lot maybe this is just because I've grown more interested in this nutrition topic recently and like you said cognitive bias so I'm seeing it more often but with a lot of like I feel like veganism or plant-based diet or just a lot of this is kind of gaining traction and and for good reason there's a lot of good stuff behind it or like organic foods and that things um but a lot of the people out there who are advocating for it, it's such a blanket fold statement saying like, oh, this, if you do this diet, you'll be great. And just saying that for everyone, which clearly is not the case. It's, it's such an individual thing. And it, it's kind of dangerous no matter what side you take, whether it's fully meat or fully vegan, just that fully blanket statement can be so dangerous to listen to and to accept. Absolutely, dude. And that, that goes for for every every aspect of life I find, you know, not just nutrition, but also, you know, also with the type of movement or the type of training you're doing. And I find, as I said earlier, the only way to be wrong is to pick a side and and conform. And the conformity is where we go so wrong, I, I find, in in in, you know, trying to better our, ourselves, our lives, whatever it is. And, you know, with nutrition, if no no matter what the name of the diet is, whether it's paleo or caveman or primal or vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or freaking wild or you know there's a bazillion different diets you can do the thing is all of those diets work there's there's a story for every single diet where it's worked and there's also a story where it didn't work so my viewpoint is instead of saying okay i'm paleo and i only eat paleo i say like let's cherry pick let's take a bit of veganism let's take a bit of paleo let's take the wild diet let's take some caveman in there let's take everything try it all what works for you keep what doesn't discard you know, try it again in six months' time. Maybe it'll work better than I don't know. But just conforming and saying I am this way and it 
everything you say is wrong and my way is the only right way. It's just, it just puts such a big segregation between people and communities and it slows down your progression in terms of, you know, your forward movement and what it is because you just, you're so bound to your belief system of what, what you should or shouldn't do instead of just experimenting and saying, well, that works. I'm going to keep doing that. That doesn't work. I'm going to scrap that. Let's you know, move forward. So conformity is a, it's a fucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a tough line to walk with. Like you want to be strong in your beliefs and, you know, have like, no one's going to want to listen to someone who's just like changing beliefs every other day and, you know, never deciding on anything. Cause you know, that just looks terrible and like they can't make up their mind. But at the same time, if you're so rigid in your belief, I mean, we've seen that throughout history people who are rigid in their beliefs the first 30 years of their life suddenly it's like nope that's not the way this world's gonna work and then the rest of their life they're living with that belief and everyone's like this person's whack like they're so outdated so walking that line of hey i'm strong in this belief right now but that could change like i don't know how do you walk that line between those two yeah you just you just walk it and that's that's what i think is important you just you just walk it and there's a big problem I find with people, especially these days with social media and we have this, it's no longer just like your identity. Like I am, you know, I'm Dane Bergman and the hundred people that I know in my life know me as Dane. No one else does sort of thing with social media. You know, I'm Dane Bergman and I have however many followers on Instagram and however many on Twitter and then the people I know and then the people they talk about, they know, you know, so you have this, this now this like global identity who you kind of feel that you have to be that person or you have to be that that thing or, you know, subscribe to that belief system that you've talked about your whole life or whatever it is, right? But it's kind of just like, it's kind of all bullshit because really like my, the reason that I believe what I believe is because of the environment that I was brought up around and my belief, my identity isn't, I wasn't born as the person I am. I created this person. I was molded by the, the culture that I grew up in, by the environment that that shaped me, by what my parents' beliefs were, by what my religious beliefs are. So I, you know, I don't think identity is this fixed. It's, you know, I, I, I believe this, and I shouldn't say I believe this, because, you know, really, who knows what you believe, as I'm just sort of preaching this. But this this idea of like a fixed identity is just, it's bullshit. It, it's, and it's been proven. I think it was Carol, uh, Carol S. Dweck. She wrote a book called um, Mindset, and she goes into the, the static mindset or fixed mindset, she calls it, um, and also the uh, what you call it, like a was it transient? I can't remember the name she used. Basically, it was saying that that identity is not fixed; it's completely moldable. You can you can adapt it, you can change it, you can become whatever you want. So, really, this idea of identity and and my belief system, it's just you know you're not you're not held to anything. You can completely change and mold and adapt and improve and go left and and everything you want to do. So, and that, and that goes to everything. It goes for your identity. Your identity is just a, it's just a story you've created yourself anyway throughout your life. It's not, it's not a real tangible thing. It's not, you know, it's so, but people are so, they're so bound up by it. And they're so, no, I am this. And that's what I've always been. Therefore, you know, I am what I am. Therefore I am when, it, you know, that's in my opinion, that shouldn't be the focus. The focus, the focus should be like, I am becoming this. And then you become that. And you know, what was in the past is, that was just, you know, stepping stones. And it seems to be that people think that if they're like, for me, I'll just link back to the veganism thing. Cause it was such a recent part of my life. It's like, I spent three years, if you will, you know, vegetarian, vegan. And then for me to go back 
on my word and start hunting again, even that sentence in itself to go back on my, on my belief system. I don't feel like that's such a negative connotation towards it. You know, um, you know, why can't, I think, uh, Yvonne, Yvonne Bouchard, the guy from uh, Patagonia, um, he said, it's like, it's not, you're not going backwards. He's like, why can't we get to the edge, turn around and take a step forward? And that was such a big paradigm shift for me. It's just like, I'm not going back to my old ways. I'm turning around and moving forward to my new ways. Um, and I feel like that's such a, a big thing for people that they do is like, oh, I can't change who I am because everybody thinks that I'm this person and I've, I've been this person and now I'm, I have to keep being this person. And it just really, really, just really limits, it really limits the, the, the person you can become. Yeah, that's a dangerous place to get to. And it's, I mean, it's comforting in a way to have that identity, even if it's a shitty identity, you know, even if you're that person like, just party animal, whatever, getting hammered and, oh, that's me. Like, yeah, that's you now, but that doesn't have to be you forever. But that's like exactly. the identity that you identify with. So then you're stuck with that and it's just kind of a terrible feedback loop. Yeah, so, exactly. And that's exactly what it is. And it's like, well, I've always done this, so I'll just keep doing it. And I'll keep partying and I'll keep being hungover on Saturday or, you know, whatever, whatever this identity is that people – are defining themselves by, but you know, it's, it's not the way it has to be. And it's completely, you know, you can, it's completely moldable. You can change it to whatever you want to do. You can adapt it to whatever you want to do. And I find that just letting people know that is, is so empowering. Cause they're like, you know, I don't have to be, you know, the, the dumb person at school for me, it was always math. I was really bad at math and, I believed I was bad at math and therefore I was bad at math because I didn't try to get better at math because I was shit at math. You know, it's this big <laughs> self-fulfilling cycle that just, you know, it's like a, it's a feedback loop and they happen all day, every day in life, everywhere. And they can either, you know, spiral you down and pummel you into like despair and, and depression or you can spiral up and, you know, and become more and more and more. And, you know, I'm not good at math, but I'm going to try and get better at math because, you know, I think I can be good at math if I try. And then you try and then you get a better test result. And you're like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at math. And then so then you study more and you get better. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm really good at math. I'm going to study more. And then you spiral up and up and up, right? So, you know, it's just, it's your belief system. That's what it is. And your beliefs are formed from your thoughts. So you've got to intercept at your thoughts and, you know, change that. And then you change your beliefs, then you change your reality, right? So, well, you bend it at least. Yeah. And that's, that's not a, easy thing to do nothing we've been talking about today is easy to do <laughs> dude i told you man I'm, I'm not about the shallow stuff i like to get deep and you know and uh, we were chatting the other day on instagram uh, about um david goggins and cameron oh haynes oh my who, gosh dude these guys are beasts these guys are fucking beasts and and they just just their ethos just it just makes me want to do more and be more it makes me feel like a fucking pussy it feels like, I'm like what am i <laughs> what am i doing i'm so i'm so like God, I, I feel sometimes I'm like, oh, poor me, this, this. And then you just, you watch these dudes and you're like, I got to fucking step it up. And that's, you know, it's, it's tough, but you know, and they, they talk about the grind and they talk about suffering and people are scared of suffering and they're scared of, you know, um, being, becoming, you know, not being comfortable and all this sort of stuff that they're like, no, I fucking want that. They feed off that stuff. Goggins says he's like, he's like, you know, he feeds on souls and the souls are these things that he challenged himself with. And he's just, man, he's just a machine. Both of them are. They're just, they're so inspiring. They're just, yeah, they're crazy. I love them. <laughs> yeah. I, I have something else to say on them as well, but 
real quick before we talk about them. Um, but yeah, like just these changes, it's it's hard because it, in a way, you have to like kill a part, like kill your identity in a way. You mm-hmm. know, if you're Absol- if you're a super lazy, never work out, eat terrible, and that's your identity you've associated with you, like you have to kill that person, which is terrifying. <laughs> like it- you, that's all you've known for your whole life, possibly, and suddenly it's like okay, I have to not do this and step into the complete unknown and change a lot of shit in your life. Like, yeah, no, no shit. That's scary. Like (laughs) it's scary, but then you, you know, you got to flip that as well. And you're going to look at it. It's like, is that as scary as living out this same existence that I'm clearly not happy with, or I don't like, you know, or something's missing, you know, what's, what's the scarier thing, you know, a little bit of like suffering and struggle or a life long of, you know, living this, this life that you, that you're not happy with, because if you want, if you were happy, you wouldn't want to change. But, you know, it's like, for me, fuck like two days of pain or like getting up early, that, that sucks. It's tough, but a life of living untrue to myself or living below my capabilities, fuck that. Like that scares the shit out of me. That scares me way more than, you know, trying to run a hundred miles or, I don't know <laughs> anything else like that. Yeah. That scares me so much more than any of this short-term pain and short-term suffering. Absolutely. That have it, to go through. Yeah, it's like what's the alternative of not changing? Like, yeah, it's gonna uh, be hard. Yeah. For, what's it's gonna be hard for the next months or years or whatever? But if you don't change, then what? What will life look like by the end? Are you three hundred pounds and like dead at sixty? Like, you know, it's you got to think the long term when you're trying to make that shift. I guess. Absolutely. And one, one of my mentors, Sam Ovens, he, he talks about this and he talks about the two selves and basically, you know, you've got your static self, you know, the kind of self who you are, if you will, not you know, who you are, who, who you're, you know, who you're being, if you will. And then the becoming self of who you're becoming. And he said, these fucking things, they go to war. And, you know, if you're, if you're 250 pounds and overweight and eat fucking Oreos every day and you decide that you want to become better that next morning, that static self, the overweight dude that doesn't do shit, he's going to fucking fight back and he's not going to want to get out of bed at all. He's going to be like, nah, let's have another snooze. Let's snooze the button. Let's, let's not work out. I don't want to do this. But then Sam Oven says, he's like, you got to bring a fucking gun to the fight. He's like, if, you, if, you're, if your former self or your static self wants to bring a knife to the fight, you bring a gun and you fight back. If he brings a gun, you bring a fucking bazooka. If he brings a bazooka, <laughs> you bring a tank. And he's like you got to you got to outmuscle him. You got to go to you got to go to work and you got to get up. And the more you do that, dude, the, the easier it is because all of a sudden now, you know, the, your static self now it's like it progresses. Your static self is now the dude that is no longer 250. He might be 200 and he might work out 3 days a week and he might, you know, get up at 7:30 instead of 11 a.m. You know, so now so now you're not you're not fighting with that dude anymore. You're now fighting with the you know, version 2.0 and you know you got to bring out version 3.0 and keep improving and bring a gun to that next battle so it's uh it's a really cool analogy and one that <laughs> I, I battle with every day for sure oh yeah absolutely and uh in in david goggins book at the beginning he's like if you finish this like get ready to go to war with yourself he's like that's the greatest enemy you're going to war with yourself right now like and that's it's exactly true you got to fight yourself and <laughs> what you actually want to do and what you know you need to do to get to where you want to be. Yeah. That's, you know, and people see him and they think that he's an endurance runner and he's like, he does endurance running, but he doesn't do it because he wants to run the furthest. He does it because he wants, as he said, he goes, I got to, I want to build calluses on my mind, on my brain, because I don't, 
you know, he doesn't like running. He doesn't want to run 100, 240 miles or whatever he ran. He does it for the mental strength that he has to build to complete these events. And that's the crazy part. He's like, I'm doing it to become this, this, have this crazy, crazy mindset of I can do fucking anything and I'm going to suffer as much as I need to to get through it. And, you know, it kind of sounds, it sounds crazy, but it's, it's so fucking true. And, you know, and everyone's got their own version of that. It might not be a 250 mile run, but, you know, it could be anything. And that's what it is. It's, it's all about that, that battle with yourself, man. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I've been trying to think about the last few days is, um, like this, these analogies we've been using in this discussion, it's, and obviously with Goggins, it's all kind of about physical stuff and physical challenges because mm-hmm. it's such a not black and white type thing, but it's very apparent how quickly you're going to be able to suffer and what your mindset is when you go out and do some physical thing that you're not, don't think you can do or are pushing yourself. So I was trying to think like, what are some other ways that like you can adopt that mindset in your life beyond just the physical realm. Yeah, absolutely, dude. And like first thing that comes to my head is what we talked about earlier, uh, sorry, what we talked about earlier, which is, you know, your relationships and that vulnerability, dude, because that's hard. That's like to be brutally honest with somebody, not in a negative sense, not to them anyway, I'd find, but about yourself, that's, man, that's harder than running a fucking marathon. That's tough. Like to get out there and to bear your heart and bear your soul and completely remove any shield that you've got up and let someone in and talk about them. I mean, that like that's dude, that's that's tough. That's like that's harder, as I said, it's harder than running a marathon for sure. But the reward is as great as completing a marathon. You know, you, you just completed your second your second, I think second half marathon, right? Yeah, that was uh last October. Last so, October, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and like how good did that feel? Like phenomenal, yeah. Yeah, it felt great. I was I finished yeah. it, and I'm like, all right, what's next? <laughs> yeah, what's next? And then I saw you did the, you did the next one. You took 29 seconds off your mile pace. I saw. Yep. You know, so you're improving, and you finish that, and you're like, fuck, this feels good. I'm like, I'm addicted. What's next? What's next? And it's like that for me is is, is vulnerability and these these authentic raw relationships or conversations, even like you know, like we're having now. It's you get to the end of it, and you come out, and you're like, you're like mentally drained because you're like, fuck, I just bought, bared my soul, but you're like you're energized at the same time and you're like, shit, like, fuck, who can I go talk to next? Like, who wants to hear my deep, dark secrets? I'm ready to let them all out. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, you know, that's another way of doing it, I guess, is, is that vulnerability in relationships. And, and then, like, you look at it with work as well. For me, it's like the physical things for me, they come so much more natural to me. Like, I ran 15 kilometers yesterday. It was my first long run since I, I kind of I nearly broke my foot last weekend. I was in hospital and I went out and ran 15Ks and I felt, I was like, this is easy. But then, you know, come get me in front of a computer trying to finish my program. Fuck, dude, it's so tough. Like, I hate sitting down. I hate writing. I'm definitely not like, you know, my program I've written, it's 230 pages, over 90,000 words. I've been working on it this year. And I've hated nearly every second of it. Like, <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm a doer, man. I'm, I'm such a, like, I like to do shit that's physical and active. So for me, running 15 kilometers is a walk in the park compared to sitting down. Like I have to battle, I have to bargain with myself to sit down for an hour and work on my program. And all I got to do is sit and write. Like (laughs) that's so backwards. It doesn't make any sense in my brain, but that's how it works. Yeah. I've been there before too. Like just sitting down, you're like, okay, I just got to knock off a few more words or do some editing and like just get this post up. 
and yeah, that's harder than going out and doing a long run sometimes. Like yeah, dude. just focusing intently for forty five minutes is when all you want to do is everything but that. Like anything but like <laughs> I will happily get a toothbrush and clean the bottom of my running shoes before I write a single word, dude. Like, oh, and I'm like, oh, no, I can de- – yeah, I should stretch. Yeah, yeah, I should stretch. And, you know, no, oh, I'll just put the washing on. And then, man, I can procrastinate about procrastination. It's insane. It's such a battle. It's so hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those little ways of procrastination are so dangerous because it feels productive and it feels like, oh, well, I, I have to get this done right now because I have this tomorrow. And if I don't, then I won't be able to do that. And, you know, you rationalize with yourself of why it all makes sense, but it's all just distractions. <laughs> it is, it is, man. And that's, and that's that thing. That's that mental resilience. It's like making yourself sit in the fucking chair or stand at the desk. I like to stand and just write. And, you know, it's the same. It's the same. It's no different to putting your shoes on and going for a run. Once your shoes are on, once you're out the door, you're fine. It's that first five minutes. And that's what I find once I sit down, once I get going. You know, you can't. You get in the zone. Your brain's like, all right, I gotta think. I gotta be creative. I gotta do this sort of shit. But yeah, man, it's 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 a, definitely an ongoing battle, and as I said, one that's way harder for me than anything physical at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I I forget who it was. I think it was um, this author named Stephen Pressfield. But mm-hmm. I, the quote was, he's like, writing isn't hard. The hardest part of writing is actually sitting down and starting to write. Then from there, it just flows naturally. Like, yeah, dude. Just so sitting true. down and going and getting started. Yeah, same thing with running. And I guess you just got to force yourself to do it enough times and it'll become natural. Just got to do it. That's exactly right. And, and with anything, it's not um, – it's not. It's a really good quote from Sam Ovens again, who I, I really, really enjoy. This. If you haven't checked his stuff out, really, see what he does. But who, Sorry, he, who is he? Sam Ovens, he's – He's a Kiwi. He's from New Zealand. He lives in New York now in Manhattan, but he's, um, he's a consultant or he, he teaches people to, um, you know, start their own consulting. He owns consulting.com and he's just a, a really, really great human with an insane work ethic. It's crazy, but his, his programs are phenomenal. They're some of the best that I've done in terms of like understanding how to build an online business for one, but just understanding the self. And he's got a, he's got a, a part of his program called the alchemy of self, which is just one of the best self-improvement sort of tools, guides, resources that I've ever used. And it's, it's gone such a long way in, in shaping my perspective and paradigm and everything like that, that he, um, he says, um, he says, we, we do not become our goals. We become our lowest standards. And it's so true. It's like, I, I want to be an online lifestyle coach. That's my goal, right? It's just as an example, but, if my lowest standard is I never fucking sit down and write and I don't do the marketing, then I'm not going to become that. I'm going to become the dude that fucking does his washing every single day instead of writing his program, instead of doing the work. Or if you want to become a marathon runner, but your, your lowest standard is you sit on your fucking ass all day and eat McDonald's and don't do shit, you're not going to become your goal. And We don't become our goals. We become our lowest standard. And so it's all about raising those standards. It's like what am, what am I willing – what's the lowest I'm willing to accept in my life? And then from there, you can build that up. And that's, that's how you achieve shit. You don't set your goals, write them down and stick them on a big fucking, you know, pristine plaque on your wall and say, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and all these resolutions. It's just standards. You got to raise your standards and you got to maintain your standards. And that's how you achieve shit. That's a powerful question. Yeah, man. What's the lowest what, are, what are your standards? Yeah. Yeah. What are they? And it changes day to day, but, you know, what, and, you know, we, you'll do a lot to not, 
to, you know, you come up with every excuse in the world to not achieve your goals that day. But once it becomes a standard, dude, it's like, you know, it's really, really hard for you to break that. So once you set your standards, it's, and then you slowly increase your standards each time. And over time you can, you can achieve whatever the hell you want. But yeah, dude, it's all about the standards, man. Forget the goals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, whew, yeah. Um, okay, so I still have a few questions about your vegan stuff. Got a yeah, little uh, a little tangent off there, but that's a good one. Um, yeah. So, you know, obviously being vegan, like, I not that there's an assumption, but it's like you think of people who are vegan as automatically just being healthier, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily true. Like, there's still vegans out there who eat like shit. Like, there's a lot of food out there that's considered vegan that's, you know, if you took that diet, you'd be a pretty still unhealthy and not like living a healthy lifestyle. So what was like your vegan diet like? You know, what was what's like a healthy vegan diet look like compared to still kind of a shittier vegan diet? Yeah, so for me, what I've found is that the majority of people who are doing any sort of diet seem to be on the, the less healthier side. And whether that's a standard American diet, vegan, paleo, anything, you know, unless you're a healthy person, and have healthy lifestyle habits, then you normally sort of take, you know, the easy road, which is the junk food road. Um, so you can eat as a vegan, you can eat fucking Oreos and fries all day, every day. And you are a vegan 100%, you know, there's, there's no harming of animals and no animal products in either of those food items, but you know, they're shit for you and they're not going to fuel you well and you're going to get sick. So, you know, this whole battle of, of what is healthy and um, for me, I was, I was definitely on the, on the healthy end of things because, you know, I, I didn't, I don't like Oreos for one, but, <laughs> but I, uh, I did, well, you know, I do, I don't mind an Oreo, but they're not my, they're not my go-to snack when I want one. But, um, you know, I, for me, in terms of my diet, I was really, really big on, um, blended smoothies. That was always my breakfast straight away. And I, I didn't really care for the taste. I was like, how much nutrients can I get into a two liter? I had a two liter jar, by the way, that was my smoothie breakfast jar was huge and um i'd be i was like what can i what can i get in this and i had sometimes upwards of 20 25 ingredients in a smoothie and i still i like the taste i kind of like the earthy sort of flavor anyway but um you know that was my go-to breakfast um and then i was eating a lot of quinoa i was eating i was eating a lot of rice um, a lot of vegetables i'm kind of boring sometimes and i'm like i'll just cook up a huge big as many different veggies as i can find and cook them up put a few spices and herbs on them and i'm happy to eat that a lot of the time um i was also doing um, what was a big part of my snacks? My snacks turned to nuts and seeds, man. Like I became a nut peanut butter monster. I was eating so much peanut butter. It was insane. I've actually cut myself off now, but peanut butter is great. I love it. But, um, yeah, so that, that was my go-to. Um, and I still ate a lot of food. I was still eating upwards of 4000 calories a day. So, you know, I definitely didn't, I didn't lose any weight as a vegan, which a lot of people think is kind of the first step is, oh, you lose so much weight as a vegan. I didn't lose anything. I, may, I might have lost a kilo or two, but that was probably orientated around the marathon training that I was doing more than what I was eating. Um, I did lose a little bit of body fat, as I said, and I lost a lot of water retention. And I'm pretty sure that was through the elimination of processed salts out of my diet from, you know, compared to the standard American diet. But, um, but yeah, I, once again, it's like, you know, what is the healthy diet? It's, it's the biggest question is compared to what? And a lot of, People who go vegan, if they do it the right way, they're going to be healthier than the base foundation of where they were because they were, they grew up on the, you know, on that the Western diet, which is just complete bullshit of you know processed crap that 
pretty much any diet they do, if they choose a healthy option, they're going to get healthier. They're going to have a better base, you know, base point from there. But um, yeah, that doesn't mean doesn't mean to say that if you eat a vegan diet, you're uh, you're going to be healthier or you're going to be healthy. It's always compared to what you know. So yeah. So what would like a typical? You said breakfast was usually a big smoothie. Was that oh, yeah. veggies or fruit or both? Well, all of the above, yeah. I'd go. So, if you want me to run run me through off the top of my head, what what my sort of and I still eat this all the day. I still just because I'm not vegan anymore doesn't mean I scrapped everything. I still eat <laughs> every single day. I I was having a joke with my uh, with my girlfriend the other day about um sort of what my new name should be for what I'm eating if I was to like try and coin a diet. And I came up with um I borrowed a part of this off of a podcast that I heard. He calls it a pagan. Um, and I put wild pegan in there. So I was going to be a wild pegan. And that basically meant I only eat wild game and I have a paleo base with vegan influences. So it was a wild <laughs> pegan. <laughs> you know, if I was to conform to a diet, that was apparently where I'm at right now. You could but, start um, a whole new movement, man. Man, it could be the next thing. I could write a fucking book. Who knows, right? So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many people would want to call themselves a wild pegan, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it could work. But, um, yeah, so for me, uh, yeah, my smoothie, as I said, it was like two liters, massive. I'd do uh, two bananas, an apple. Um, I'd put in cacao powder. I'd have a plant-based protein powder, which is normally rice or hemp, um, and that would normally have a vanilla flavor because I kind of I dug that vanilla flavor for a while. Um, then I'd put um, half a beet in there. I'd put kale and spinach in, um, and then I'd put in cinnamon, maca powder. I was doing um, corella and um what's that other green one i can't think off the top of my head right now um such a this i can't remember it's it's a um ah i'm blanking not but anyway, it's not spinach uh, uh spirulina spirulina okay. sorry yeah so spirulina will go in there as well um i put coconut oil i put coconut full fat coconut cream um, I put ice and water. I never really used, I didn't really like any of the rice milk or anything like that, but yeah, just ice, water. Um, God, I'm trying to think what else at some stages, dude, this smoothie would take me like 20 minutes to make. It was insane. But, um, yeah, just like all of the above, any, any vegetable that I wanted to put in there that was based in the cruciferous vegetable sort of area. That's what I was working with. Bok choy. I'd put that in as well. Um, rocket, if I wanted a little bit of the, the pepperiness and, um, in the flavor, but yeah, it was basically just as many greens, as many veggies, as many fruits, um, as well as all the powders, um, the coconut creams, the coconut oil. I was trying to get the fats up there as well. And, and then I'd jam some ice and I'd jam water and then I'd blend this sucker up. You need a high power one. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And then I'd, I'd drink that down, dude. And it wouldn't even touch the sides. It was just, I love it. I still love them. They're so good, but I've sort of, I've got slack, I guess. And, you know, it's also expensive to buy all that shit. It's just like, you know, it was, it was costing me a fair bit. So not that, you know, not that I really care for, you know, I'd rather be healthy than, than I guess, you know, have a few extra dollars in the pocket. But, um, yeah, now I'm just a lot more sort of lax on, on the powders mainly. I still do a lot of the veggies. I still do a lot of the fruits and everything like that. The coconut milk, uh, coconut cream, sorry. Um, and all that and cacao powder, but yeah, I don't really use maca as much anymore. I don't use all the different um, I was using amla berry powder for the vitamin C because that's a super super high vitamin C. But yeah, I just sort of I sort of tried to move away from the the powdered um, sort of foods as much as I could and just trying to focus as much on whole foods or at least minimally processed as I as I can get my hands on at the moment. So 
I'm sort of doing it at this current moment. So what would you make that right when you wake up or would you like just, I guess, walk me through like a typical day for you, whether that's right now with your eating diet or like back a few weeks ago, like what time are you normally waking out? What's your workout schedule like? What's a typical meal for lunch or dinner? Like just kind of walk me through a, a normal day. Yeah, I'll run, I'll run you through what I'm doing right now. And that's, it's, it's the same as when I was vegan. Um, but now I just inc- incorporate, you know, the eggs and um, wild caught seafood that I'm, that I'm getting myself at the moment. But um, so basically for me, I fast uh, every single day, Monday to Friday, intermittent fasting. And I kind of follow a flexible routine of around about um, a 16 to 8 split. So I eat for eight hours of the day and I fast for 16. Um, at the moment, my current time, I sort of eat around about 10 a.m. You know, I haven't eaten just at the moment yet. But um, so 10 a.m. is normally when I eat and then I sort of finish up around about 6 p.m. And that's purely because that's what my work schedule sort of coincides with. And that, that's kind of the, the time of day that I like to eat. So um, I wake up around about 5, 5.30 most mornings. Um at the moment with my job, I bartend at a restaurant here in Lennox Head and I also set up the restaurant in the morning for an hour. So I go in and get um, open the restaurant up and that starts at 6am. So I get up about 5.30, I cruise on down to work, um, I set up the restaurant and then after 7am when I finish, I start my first workout. At the moment, I'm doing um, I'm doing two a days to kind of shake myself up because one a days were just, I was just, as we spoke about earlier, I was too comfortable. I was just coasting. So I wanted to step it up for a month and do two a day. So uh, I do my first workout in the morning, which um, is running. And I go for a run anywhere from, you know, five kilometers to, to 20 kilometers. Um, and then I come back. Um, and then after that, I'll kind of have a shower and relax a little bit. And I normally do my second session, which will be either weights or it'll be some form of yoga, depending on what day it is. And then by that time, it's around about nine. Um, and then I normally try to get I try, and this is where I struggle. This is my hardest part of my day. I try and st- work on my program for an hour, <laughs> but I'm just kind of like kind of a bit shot after the run and, and everything like that. But um, I do a bit of work on my program for an hour and then come 10 o'clock, it's straight up to the kitchen and it's time to chow down. And yeah, normally a smoothie. I crush a big smoothie. Um, and then, yeah, back into back into work for another little bit. Um, and then I chill. Come 12 o'clock, I like to chill out and just sort of do whatever I want to do, whether that's go for a surf or go spear fishing, go fishing, sort of do whatever I want to do. I feel like my mornings are my, my go time and my afternoons are time to chill, stretch. Maybe I'll watch a movie or something like that or hang out with my girlfriend or anything like that. And then I work at night. So I start work at either 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. bartending. And I work till about 10 o'clock. And then I, um, I eat dinner when I'm at work. So I eat dinner right on 5.30. So I'm done by 6 and I can start my fast finish work, come home, sleep like a baby, dude, and then uh, up the next day. So after six, you will literally not eat anything, like not even some nuts or a small snack? Like at six, you are, you're cut off till next, next day at 10? Yeah, yeah, next day. That, this, is, this is like my benchmark. This is what I want. I was doing 18 hours, so I was, I was cutting it off at five and starting at 11, but I found that I was constantly like what craving. It wasn't craving. I just I wanted to eat more. I wanted to eat for longer. Like I'd get to, if I, if I stopped eating at five, by the time I finished work at 10 o'clock, I was just kind of like, I was craving food and being working in a restaurant. You're smelling it the whole time. It's kind of like this slow torture. <laughs> and you, um, and then I would, uh, you know, I'd, I'd normally eat some crap as well. Like I'd make myself some shitty, you know, 
chocolate almond milkshake or something, which I didn't want to do. So I, I went back to 10 to six and that seems to work perfect for me. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I stick to that as rigidly as I can. Sometimes I'll do 14 hours. Sometimes I'll do 18, you know, but 16 is my, is my sort of my target benchmark. Um, and yeah, I don't eat anything outside of that besides I don't consume anything, just water. So just water to, to do it. I stick to the traditional, you know, form of, of intermittent fasting rather than the sort of Dave Asprey bulletproof intermittent fasting where he has coffee and, and has like coconut, fat, uh, coconut oil in his coffee and that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, dude, that's, that's what I do fasting wise. And then weekends is a free for all. I, I still eat healthily, but, um, if I want to get up at 6am and eat a massive breakfast then I'll do it. So, uh, yeah, weekends are time to just do what I want. And then come Monday, I'm ready to, to get back into the, the fasting. So what's the, cause I've heard intermittent fasting before and I think that's something else is kind of gaining steam and some attention with a lot of people. Like what's the, not necessarily science, but just what's, why is this something that can be beneficial? Yeah. Well, intermittent, it's been around for ages. Like it's actually been a long time. It's starting to grab mainstream, you know, um, notoriety right now, but basically what it, the reason, you know, there's many, many benefits and, you know, you're going to look at stuff like you're going to get um, increased levels of hormone growth, human growth hormone. Uh, there's weight loss benefits, fat loss benefits. It helps increase lean muscle mass. Like there's huge science behind the longevity in terms of increasing your, your lifespan. So there's all these benefits of it. And the only downside that I can really find is irritability because, you know, once you get to like 15 and a half hours, you can be kind of like a bit of a dick because you're hungry, right? Or, you know, how long you're doing it. So for me, being a little bit irritable and a little bit hungry, and this is normally only in the first week to you sort of adapt to it um, and to have all those benefits, you know, with the reduction in precancerous cells, which is just shown to be such a, a big benefit of it that, um, you know, for me, it's, it's totally worth it. But the main thing that, that I believe to be behind um, why intermittent fasting works so well in terms of all that is because when you eat, you're actually putting your body under a stress. It's digestive stress. So you have to go down, you have to break the food, you have to transport it all around the body, absorb it and do everything like that. So your body's actually in a, in a stress state when, when you're eating and when you're digesting food. And when you're not eating, when you're in a fasted state, your body allows cellular sort of metabolization and different cellular functions to go on and happen. So the two big ones that really, really happen with fasting is apoptosis and autophagy or autophagy, depending on where you're from. And basically what that is, is controlled killing of cells and controlled consumption of malfunctioning cells, basically. So the premise behind it is if you extend that fasting window out, you allow your body to do those cellular functions for a longer period of time. Um, and that could be destroying or um, digesting precancerous cells that, you know, that already sort of, that could become cancerous. Um, and it's also you know, it helps with, um, with fat burning, everything like that. So the basic premise behind it without getting too nitty gritty is it extends that window to allow your cellular functions to go on for a longer time. And then you can eat your food in the other side. So that's, you know, that's the big benefit of it is the, uh, is the increased fasting window that allows your body to, you know, regenerate, renew, recycle, um, and all the different cellular processes that go on. How long has this been a pretty like big focus of your schedule and, just the way you go about your days? Um, I've been intermittent fasting now for coming up two years, I think. Um, yeah, nearly two years when I've actually like paid attention. If you think about it, we all do intermittent fasting. We all have a, a time where we eat and a time where we don't eat. Unfortunately, 
um, for most people, the time where they do eat is is greater than the window where they don't eat. Um, and there's a lot of research that comes out from a, a doctor called Dr. Sachin, uh, Sachin Panda. He's based out of um, the Stork Institute, Stork Institute, sorry, in, uh, in America somewhere there. And he was showing that in rats, at least anyway, when they when they do fasting with rats, that once you get to a window of 12 hours fasted, 12 hours eating, that's the kind of, that's the, the minimum point of what you want to do. You know, if you start doing anything less than that, you're not really getting the benefits of, of intermittent fasting. And it seemed to peak at around about 16 to 18 hours where you were getting the most benefit from, um, from intermittent fasting. So for me, it's once I started, once I learned that and started incorporating intermittent fasting in my life, it's been around about yeah, a year and a half to two years that I've been paying attention and kind of my schedule at the moment, as I said, Monday to Friday, it's a 16, 18 hour um, um, schedule. Weekends, I do what I want. And then um, for a long time, the first Monday of every month, I do a 24-hour fast. And then every quarter, I do a two- to three-day fast. But recently, i got to say that I'm not doing that anymore. I find that the, the Monday to Friday is, is enough, and, and I'm enjoying that enough um, to not sort of need to go to the, the two- to three-day fast. So I'm sure – this is something you've been asked a million gazillion times, but I'd like to hear your opinion on it. Um, and I'm sure many other people have already asked themselves this at this point or have wanted to ask it. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of, not misconception, but a lot of people think that you can't get protein from, let's, let's go back to before you started eating fish again, that you can't get protein on a vegan diet or they ask where do you get your protein from and so someone like you who's very jacked and strong and working out every day and doing two a days and you were a vegan for you know 18 months and vegetarian before that what do you tell the people who ask you probably where do you get your protein from why aren't if you aren't eating animals what do you do for protein how do you build muscle yeah <laughs> That is honestly, as a vegan for that time, that was the most common question that I've ever been asked in my life. And it used to drive me nuts. And I actually wrote, I wrote an article um, on it so I could just send people. I actually didn't write an article. I wrote it. I did a little Instagram post on it just to send people there. But yeah, there's a the big misconception that you can only get protein from animals because we think that protein only comes in the form of animal flesh, which is totally bogus. You can get plenty of protein from plant sources. Um, and for me, the, the protein that I mostly ate was, um, was normally come from hemp, chickpeas, uh, quinoa. Um, all vegetables have pro pretty much all vegetables have some sort of pro uh, protein content to them as well. So, um, yeah, you know, you can certainly get it. And as I said, I didn't lose any weight really um, when I was on a vegan diet. My strength gains actually went up. And uh, how I know that is I tried to do a, I tried to do a bench press sort of goal, if you will, and that was to bench press my body weight 20 times. And at the time, it was 195 pounds, about I think it was 89 kilos or something like that. And um, I wanted to do that 20, bench press that 20 times. And I'd tried that twice previously on a traditional diet that I was eating, and I hadn't got it. And then I did it on a vegan diet, and I did it. So, you know, and I hadn't, at that stage, I hadn't eaten animals in, in coming up on a a year at least and before you know as I said before that it was uh it was very very rarely that i'd eat any any animal meat but um yeah it's a complete misconception dude um 
you know, and you, you only have to get on Instagram these days and look at, um, you know, veganbodybuilder.com or, you know, whatever some dude's called himself that um, you can do it. You can definitely get enough protein and people are sort of scared by the idea of protein deficiency. Um, but there's been a lot of studies out that say that 90, well, in the US, the study that I read anyway, it was only 3% of Americans are protein deficient. And that normally comes through a lack of calories, so starvation, rather than a lack of protein. You know, they're just getting not getting enough of anything. The big majority of people, 97%, are, are fiber deficient. So they're not eating enough um, roughage and bulkage that comes with plants and vegetables. So, you know, because everybody's eating processed bullshit that has all that taken out. So, um, yeah, but as the recommended, like, minimum is 43 grams of protein a day. You know, so that's for a healthy a male adult. And it's so easy to get that that, um, you know, you don't even have to think and everybody would be getting above that. So, yeah, you don't really have to worry about protein on terms of the vegan diet. It's just whether or not it's going to work for you um, in the long term and, and personally and individually. Good to know. Mm. That is definitely a, a big concern, I think, for a lot of people, especially if yeah. they're trying to gain weight or, or uh, yeah. Yeah, because... man. It's for for me personally. I I I saw no decrease in in muscle mass or anything like that. Besides, as I said, when I was training for the marathon and the amount of kilometers I was doing, it naturally made my body composition come down more. But um, which was a benefit. But um, yeah. And then after that, I I got back up to 195 pounds. Um, just eating eating a 100% vegan diet, 100% plant based, and I only supplemented with vegan protein powder and it was only one scoop of salt and i didn't even do that for the added protein i did it for the flavor that came <laughs> that was that tasted good in my smoothies so um yeah you know and that was only i think at the max i think 20 grams of protein in that little scoop that i had so yeah there's actually no issues at all if you're eating enough of the right foods with the legumes and the quinoa and you know your hemp and all that sort of stuff and and, and your vegetables you're getting a widespread you're going to be fine protein wise just got to get a little bit creative. <laughs> get creative, dude. Yeah, expand your expand your means and and uh, sort of put whatever you want in there. But yeah, there's there's so much protein. Yeah, as I said, unless you're eating Oreos and fries all freaking day, then you know, and then protein deficiency is going to be the least of your worries. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, okay, so staying kind of on the health topic, but we'll mm -hmm. we'll move away from your vegan experience and nutrition type stuff. Um, one of the areas of health that I saw you post about and listed out some things was around sleep. And uh -huh. this is an area that I've basically, I heard a, a podcast. It was Joe Rogan. And, um, I think his name is Matthew Walker. It's like a yeah, sleep dude. doctor. Scared and the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah. That was terrifying. Cause I'm, you know, I, I'm definitely more of a night owl. So I can stay up till one, two, three o'clock in the morning working. And then, you know, right now I'm in a situation where I'm lucky enough where I can sleep in a little bit later, but you know, that's still not good. And the difference between getting six hours of sleep and even seven or eight hours is mind boggling how much it can impact you. So I'm curious about like, what's been your experience with trying to maximize the quality of your sleep and how have you been able to do this? Yeah, totally. And for anyone listening, if they haven't listened to that interview with uh, Dr. Matthew Walker and Joe Rogan, listen to it. It'll scare the bed socks off you. I'm telling you right now, it's freaking, it's gnarly what he goes into and, you know, the stuff that we don't, we don't even understand. And this guy's a, a sleep specialist and a, um, 
is a, is a neuroscientist as well, I think. And it's just, it's phenomenal. So definitely go check it out. And he goes into so much more depth than, than anything I can here. But, um, yeah, for me, um, sleep was just like so many other people. It was like the last thing you ever thought of is like, oh, you just go to sleep when, when you do. And I even went as far as about five years ago when I was trying to be Mr. Productive, I was limiting my sleep to a maximum of six, maximum six hours, usually around about four. And my whole thing was it, it didn't matter what time I went to bed, I'd set my alarm for like four to six hours later and I'd get up and I'd start my day because I wanted to increase the amount of waking hours that I could do shit in my day and build the business and, and, you know, go to work and, and work out and do all these other things. But what I found personally was after like three weeks of that, I was a fucking walking zombie. So even though I had more hours, my, my production level was so low that I was just, it was just going nowhere and I was tired and I was irritable and, you know, there's all these different personal things. But then once you look um, at what Dr. Walker was saying about the, the neurotoxin buildup that can go on in, in your brain when you're not when you're not sleeping and you're not giving yourself that that time to to detoxify your neurotoxins and everything like that. It was I could see that I just wasn't you know I wasn't myself at all. Um, fast forward five years and fast forward to me listening to that podcast, I just turned into a sleep nerd and um, did some pretty weird shit. But some of my tricks that I've got or that I've done in my house now is. I actually have no, ah, that's a lie. I actually have two light bulbs in my part of the house because um, I wanted to eliminate all junk light after hours. And that was one of the big things with modernity is, you know, where you, we're meant to get up when the sun comes up and go to sleep when the sun goes down or just after. And, you know, now we've got Instagram and phones and computers and, and, and artificial light, artificial blue light, which tricks your, your brain into thinking that it's still daytime. So your melatonin production doesn't kick in. You don't get your deep um, REM sleep. You're not getting your neural, um, your neural detoxification and all this sort of stuff. So I actually took all the lights out of my house besides the one in the bathroom and toilet. And, uh, yeah, so I pretty much live in darkness <laughs> at nighttime. Um, uh, and then also I try to limit my exposure to, to other junk lights. So I try not to, and I'm not perfect at this, of course, but I try not to use my phone after, um, after dark or at least within a few hours of going to sleep. Um, I don't have any electronics in my room besides my, my alarm watch. Um, and that's just because of the temptation. If my phone's next to my bed and I'm in bed, you know, I'll grab it and look at something, which is just, I don't need to do. Right. So, um, there's that. Uh, another sort of trick that I do to help with my sleep was um, sleeping in a dark, cool, and quiet room. I think uh, Mr. Dr. Walker said that it was like 19 degrees is the optimal sleep temperature. Um, I don't monitor the, the temperature in my room because living in Australia, it's fucking stinking hot every single day. So <laughs> I do it as cool as I can. But um, I just I work on the premise of having a fan in my room and I, I cool myself down with a cold shower before I go to bed. Um, another thing is... Uh, light exposure in the morning actually so um your melatonin production is actually set off not by the end of the day but by your first exposure to to natural light to blue light from the sun so i'd purposely go down and expose myself to light as soon as i wake up whether that's going to work and opening up the restaurant or if i don't open the restaurant i'm normally outside working out or i'm on the beach listening to a podcast and going for a walk um and how that works is by exposing to you exposing your body to blue light in the morning your body will naturally know that 12 hours later to start producing melatonin, which makes you a bit sleepy and prepares your brain to go into, into sleep mode. So that's a good little hack as well as getting the light exposure in the um, as soon as you wake up. That'll really help with it. Um, 
What else have I got off the top of my head here? Uh, the natural light I talked about. I was doing blue light glasses for a while. I, I really enjoyed them. But, and that was, once again, it's just like a filter to the blue light. So when I went to work or when I was on my computer after dark, I would wear the, the blue light blocking glasses. But that kind of coincided around about the time with my, um, my myopia thing. So I wasn't really sure if the glasses were, help, were helping out with that as well. So I decided to scrap the glasses. But um, some people love them. They swear by them. You look at Dave Asprey. He wears them everywhere, the big orange glasses when he cruises around looking like a rapper. <laughs> but, um, but he uh, – yeah. Um, another thing that I was doing for a while, which is kind of on the extreme end, is um, is body control, body temperature control. So um, we actually want to be cooler at night when we sleep and we get to um, REM sleep when our body's cooler. So our core temperature actually drops down. So we go a bit below what we're, we're naturally we are when we operate during the day. But that can be a little bit hard if your extremities are cold and you might feel cold. So you put extra blankets on and everything like that. So what I was doing um full transparency was i was sleeping naked but i'd have socks and, and gloves on <laughs> uh, this is in, this is in the winter here in australia so um yeah i'd have uh, i'd sleep nude and i'd have socks and and gloves and not just any gloves because the only gloves i had were snow gloves so i was sleeping in bright red snow gloves with uh with socks in the nude so i was hoping that no one would break in and try and uh rob me because i'd get the fright of their life for sure if they saw me walking around <laughs> jumping out of bed <laughs> but um you know when you nerd out on this stuff sleeping with socks and gloves on that's fine but um yeah that, that were my biggest things were was the, the body temperature the room temperature the dark quiet room not exposing yourself to junk light and um, you can also get some sleep apps that monitor it there's one called sleep cycle which i was using um just make sure your phone's on uh on it on plane airplane mode so you don't get the emfs buzzing around your brain but that'll monitor your based on your um your breathing patterns and it tells you when you're in you know deep sleep light sleep rem sleep and everything like that so you get a good readout in the morning of sort of the quality of your sleep but um i stopped doing that because i'd i'd wake up and the first thing i'd do is go and look at my sleep quality and if it said like 60 percent, then i was like fuck and i'd feel like i was tired all day and had a shit day so I kind of let it influence how I'd feel rather than just going out and getting on with my day and feeling how I felt. Um, so I decided to scrap that because at the end of the day, I was like, if, I'm, if I've got the, the practices in place, I'm, you know, I'm preparing myself for as good a quality sleep as I can get at that time. So the day I just got to do what I do. So I, I sort of stopped caring so much about the raw data and just going on um, the principles and uh, the practices and, and how I felt the next day. I'd be interested to know. Yeah, yeah, it does. I'd be interested to know how. Like, did you other than when obviously the kind of your vision thing, when before that started happening, did you feel like those glasses actually worked? Like, I've I've seen some advertisements for them, but I've never actually tried them. And I'm curious. Like, did you feel a difference from the the blue light glasses? Yeah, absolutely. I felt it initially the first night, and. Um, I wore them to work for the first time. So my, it, it all depends on the quality of the glasses. I know even the most expensive ones, they actually only block out like around about 90% of the blue light. Um, and they're the bright orange or dark red sort of glasses, right? So you're not, you're never actually blocking out all of the blue light that'll come from, you know, artificial lighting in whatever environment you're in, but you're going to block out a lot of it. So it does, it does help. And in my opinion, you know, if it's blocking out whatever, mine are only cheap ones off, uh, off Amazon. I think they cost me like 20 bucks and they were rated 
um, to Australian American standards. So I guess um, from what I've seen, they blocked out like 50% of the light or something like that off the top of my head. So, um, but the first night I wore them and this could be completely placebo. I don't even know, but um, you know, placebo works anyway. So it, I wore them at work and I was bartending and then come by about nine o'clock, I was just like, oh, my eyes hurt. And my eyes actually, they felt tired, which was weird. And I was just like, why are my eyes hurting? Maybe it's these glasses. And then I, I'd actually forgotten that I had the glasses on at the time. And then when I realized it was the glasses, I realized my eyes weren't tired from the glasses. They were tired because I was tired, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then, so once I had that and I went home and I got in bed and as I said, could be placebo, but I slept like a freaking baby that night. And I woke up the next day and I felt completely refreshed. And I was like, all right, well, these are, these are great. And so I did that every night for um, any, any time after night, I'd wear my glasses and I've still got them now. I'm looking at them on my desk in front of me, but I haven't been practicing them recently. Um, and I think that's because of this whole little stigma that I had in my head that maybe they were causing my myopia. But I haven't tried them since I brought the eggs back in and my myopias disappeared. So maybe I'll give them a crack tonight and see yeah, if that are yeah. uh, mm, be interesting. But yeah, they yeah. definitely work, dude. They definitely helped with um, how quickly I fell asleep, how tired I was before I went to sleep. Um, and I guess the quality of my sleep that, you know, it's hard to say it was just from that. Cause I was so, you know, I was such a little nerd, a sleep nerd at that time that I was doing everything, as I said, naked with gloves and socks on. So <laughs> who knows if it was just the glasses, but I could definitely say while I was at work, I was, uh, I was tired, man. What is, what's the shower routine you would do before bed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the shower routine and there's a whole different bunch of, you know, researching that online about what to do um so what i was doing and what i do now a variant of this still is um i do i start with like a, a two minute normal shower just to get warm get clean and then for the last i think two to five minutes i think it was five minutes i do um 20 seconds of cold like full cold and then 10 seconds of hot and i'd bounce that back and forth for two minutes and then i'd finish with like a minute or two of cold water but i kind of scrapped that as well just because when you get a big exposure to cold water constantly, like when you jump in the ocean or anything like that, you get this huge big cortisol dump in your brain because it's kind of like a fight or flight response. So cortisol interrupts your sleep quality. It can also jack you up a little bit um, and it can stop you getting into deep REM sleep. So I just did 20 seconds cold, 10 seconds hot for about two minutes. Um, and that would be enough to bring the, the core body temperature down without making it uncomfortable and without getting that big cortisol dump from the, you know, if I did three minutes of just cold. But at the moment, it's so hot here in Australia that I'm just doing cold showers because they're not even cold, dude. <laughs> but um, it's just too hot. But um, yeah, that was that was my little sleeping routine in terms of the showers was the 20 seconds cold, 10 seconds hot. And I can't remember who recommended that, but it was um, it was on one of the podcasts I listened to a few years ago. That's interesting, yeah, because – Man, if I take a cold shower, I'm wired. So, <laughs> yeah, well, try the uh, try the twenty and ten because it's actually really weird. And when I first heard this, I was just like, "What?" Like, because I was I was living in Canada when I first heard this in Vancouver, and it was it was winter at the time. So the last thing you want to do is get in the fucking cold shower. But, um, and also when I was doing it, I was bartending at at a restaurant that I didn't get home till two a.m. when I was in Canada. So I was having a cold shower at two o'clock in the morning and then trying to go to sleep. So I was kind of like. Ugh. I don't know if this is going to work for me, but the first night I did it, I did the 20 seconds and 10 second like split and I don't even remember falling asleep that night. I remember waking up the next day and just being like, holy shit, like, and yeah, it was the, it was the 10 and 10 that I, uh, sorry, the 20 and 10 and um, it brings your body temperature down enough that you 
you just fall right to sleep because your body doesn't have to go to work and bring the the core temperature down itself. You've kind of you've already done that externally through the cold shower. So give it a try, dude, and see if it see if it helps. Yeah, I'll definitely have to try that out. I've been. Uh, have you ever heard of Wim Hof or heard anything by him? Of course, man. The Wim. He's <laughs> a he's a bad dude. I love him. He's cool. Yeah. Um. He was just on the Rich Roll podcast and okay. talk talking about. He talked about a lot of stuff, but basically the takeaway was like, take cold showers and that will help with a lot of weird things. And so I've been trying to incorporate that a little bit bit more into my days. And yeah, it's, it's winter here now in Chicago, so I have to start off with a warm shower and then I switch it to cold. But it's been interesting. I don't know. I've just started, so I'll have to report back on if I feel any physical or mental differences from it or if it's just so deep biologically that you can't really tell, but... I don't know. There's a lot of interesting stuff around cold and that stressor and kind of how it affects mm. your body. Yeah, dude. Thermodynamics are like, they're just, it's crazy. And cold exposure, um, it, like there's there's a lot of research about heat exposure and like saunas and everything like that that help with longevity and, and everything. But I freaking hate hot, you know, hot saunas. So I, I kind of steer away from that, even though, you know, I should probably do that more. I did it more in Canada when it was cold, but, you know, the idea of, it being 30 degrees here and then going over sauna is just, I couldn't think of anything worse um, besides sitting at a computer. <laughs> but um, the, yeah, man, but, but cold exposure, it's, there's so much, there's so many benefits there. And I really like it in terms of the morning wake up. And I know Tony Robbins does it. I know Wim Hof does the first thing he does after, I think before even, I think after he does his breathing techniques in the mornings, he goes out in the, in the, in the mountains of the Netherlands where he lives and dumps this frozen, ice bucket of water over himself and then sits in there for however long um and so you know doing that it just it's like a jolt of electricity into your body and it just your cells are just like so you're like you are ready to go um so i I have cold showers every single morning because it just it makes it wakes me up it jolts my body into action um and then you look at the thermodynamics so you get um you get the cortisol dump you get the um uh, what's the word i want here it promotes um brown adipose tissue um, which is like, if you will, the bad fat. It's sort of normally the fat that's stored in and around your organs. Um, it promotes the the burning of that as a fuel. So, you know, that's just one other benefit that comes with it off the top of my head. But there's there's so many that are in there that um that cold water exposure and just, you know, I, I think they call it um hormesis or, or a hormetic effect, which is basically what every what exercise is, what fasting is. It's like you expose yourself to a stress. Um, normally for an acute amount of time, really shortly, and then you come away. So it's like you lift weights, you expose your muscles to this stress of lifting heavy objects, you tear them up, and then they get stronger. So that's kind of like the, the hormetic effect of cold water exposure is, you know, if you were to sit in an ice cold bath for two days, you'd probably die of pneumonia. But if you expose yourself to it for 30 seconds, you get this huge like um, cellular renewal going on and everything like that in your body. So hormesis is a really interesting sort of theory. Yeah, all those guys are just so, just how they do that. I mean, the shit that Wim Hof has done. Yeah, he's a badass, man. Unbelievable. I mean, he's hilarious and he's a badass. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's true. You gotta ease into it a little bit for sure, because with anything, if you try to do too much right away, you're either gonna injure yourself or burn out or just lose all momentum and just not even attempt again. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So you know you can. I think there's there's definitely some benefits of jumping in the deep end and just going hardcore, but 
you know, it's, it depends what it is and what you're doing and the kind of, you know, the mentality you have. Cause yeah, like overuse injuries and like injuries from not having the foundation in place in terms of like you're stabilizing muscles and, you know, um, you see that a lot with CrossFit I found and CrossFit's definitely got its benefits, but, um, it's got one of the highest injury rates, I think, out of any other sort of form of, of movement because you get in this environment where it's like, you know, who, who are like everyone's pumping each other up and it's like, do as many squats as to your shit yourself. Like, doesn't matter. Like, vomit here. Like, go as hard as you can. You know, there's this big sort of alpha dominance sort of thing going on, which is great. Like, as an athlete, I love it. But, you know, if you haven't got the conditioning and, and the foundational strength and stabilizing muscles in your body, which a lot of these people don't have because, you know, they, they might be a cat potato, then they go straight into this, this movement regime where, you know, this beautiful community and everyone's so positive and they're uplifting and you're pushing yourself and you're achieving things that you've never done. You're getting huge results in terms of your body composition changing, you're losing fat, you know, and you're getting stronger, you're doing all this stuff. And then three, six months in, boom, you pop a shoulder or you pop a knee or you tear something because you haven't got that structural integrity foundation built up um so yeah you know it's like you can go hard but you might you might have to sort of block it you know like go hard then not go hard then go hard and not go hard or or whatever but you do have to you do have to sort of you know move forward without haste i think is the is a good term for it yeah absolutely you definitely need to have that foundation like you know for anyone you know you've you said you were doing training for marathon and like you can't just go out and run 20 miles the first day after not running for a year whatever unless you're dave goggins or something but exactly (laughs) you can do it you can do it dude but you won't and it's gonna hurt and but yeah there's definitely you know work hard but work smart that's that's definitely a big principle for sure yeah exactly it's not a not a smart long-term play Mm -hmm. um but yeah so i'm curious a little bit more kind of like optimizing human performance and optimizing your lifestyle like um, you mentioned earlier how you started doing two a days because you felt like you were just kind of coasting and got a little bit complacent. So, like, when you when you start getting to this area or getting these feelings of like, you know, I'm just coasting. What do you do to switch things up and like, how do you try to challenge yourself or add variety into your routine? Yeah. So for me, um, I've kind of got this little theory. I don't even know if this is like. A theory that other people do but it's kind of something that i've came up with that i've sort of created in my own head myself anyway um and it's the idea of changing changing a state i kind of believe that there's like four or five different states that we we live in you've got your physical state you've got your mental state you've got your emotional state um and you've got your what's the fourth one that i could probably think of and then probably like your mental emotional physical and maybe like nutritional if you will um, sort of in there. So for me, I find that if I'm coasting or struggling or out of control in one of those areas, then I instantly look for something else in one of the other states to improve it on. And for me, usually it's the physical state. Like if I have something go wrong where I'm emotionally out of control and I'm like overwhelmed and I'm just like, oh, fuck, why'd I do this? Uh, you know, and you, you get caught in this wormhole of just like, you know, dissipating into the freaking nothingness where you're just like, I'm a fucking idiot, you know, or why did I do that? Or why would they do this to me? And all these things that get you nowhere, then to get out of that, you have to regain control of another state. So for me, that is usually the physical state. And I'm like, fuck it. If I'm stressed and I'm emotionally out of control, I'm going to go and run until I'm too tired to be emotionally out of control and change. And so I'll I'll change that state um, and I'll take off. Or if I'm physically out of control and I'm injured because I'm been going too hard 
or I'm burnt out or my body is just like, fuck you, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, then I'm looking at something else. So it might be the emotional state. I might want to take control of it. might be my mental state. So I'll really, really focus on um, meditation and, and, and mindfulness and gratitude and different things like that to really take control back over of that state um, of my life. So um, for me, yeah, that's what it is. And just shoot back into your question, the tour days, it was, you know, I was still, I was working out six days a week. I try to be active every single day, but it was just, it was easy. Um, I'd done it for a long time and I felt like I was coasting. I was kind of sick of my program that I was working on for the last, like in terms of my, um, my, my movement program with weights and everything like that. And I was just like, it was good. And I was, I was performing good and I was looking good, but I was, I was, I was comfortable. I was too comfortable and I felt complacent. And I was just like, you know, I had to bring out my own little version of Goggins and just be like, fuck this, like, like you know, the man in the mirror. And I just like, I got to shake it up. So for me, this month, it's been the physical aspect. And I'm like, I'm doing two a days, two movement sessions a day. And I'm just every single day, I'm going to do two sessions. And that's what it is. And for me, it was a big shake up. And um, it allowed me to, you know, feel a lot less complacent in what I was doing. And I was a lot more content and happy with what I was doing, even though I was tired. And I'm like, a lot of the times I didn't want to go and do the second workout of the day. When I did it, I was just like, fuck yeah. Like, you know, you know, you, you suffered a little bit and there's the reward after the stress. So, um, I think that answered your question. I can't quite remember what it was. <laughs> yeah. So have you seen that translate then into the other, um, areas of your life that you've listed out? Like, have you seen that impact? Those? Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. Like, hand in hand. I find that if if something's out of control, as I said, once you get that other thing back in control, whether it's through distraction of what's going on or whether it's through the achievement of, of doing something that you wanted to do, all of a sudden it allows you to remove yourself from the emotional cloud of what's going on, of why, you, you know, if it's an emotional issue and you can see things clearly, you know, you can, you can observe it for what it is and you're like, you know what, fuck, it's it's not even that big a deal. Or even if it is a big deal, it's like, well, fuck, going crazy about it in my room, staring at the ceiling isn't going to get me anywhere. So it, it gives you that percept, that perspective of, of, of the, the issue that's going on. And for me, yeah, everywhere in my life and whether it's, um, whether it is in, you know, my day-to-day life, if I'm feeling that I'm coasting, if I go out and do two a days, I'm like, shit, man, I might be coasting here, but I'm pushing it up these hills and I'm pushing it with a workout. So I feel good. And I'm happy with, with what's going on. And then I can sort of look at these things with a clearer mind and go, okay, why am I feeling complacent? Uh, maybe it's because I'm, you know, I've been doing the same job for a year and I'm, you know, been bartending for a while and I, I'm not doing what I really want to be doing. So then maybe that, you know, so I can analyze and I can work on that instead of just, you know, beating myself up over some stupid thing. Right. So it definitely, definitely plays out in all other aspects. And it's just that, that, that game of, of balance and, and taking control you know, in, in other areas. So you can regain control back in that, uh, that area where you feel so out of control. So then how do you come back from that? I guess like if you're ramping up to two days, then if that becomes your new normal, do you like, does going back to one a days, I guess this is kind of back to like, um, take turning around and taking a step away from the cliff. Mm-hmm. It's not like that you're backtracking, but if you're used to two days and suddenly you go back to one a days, does that feel like how do you go from there, I guess, and kind of not feeling complacent? Like, do you feel complacent eventually doing two a days? 
Uh, I don't know. I'm only, what is it now, the, the 14th or 15th, something like that. I'm only 15 days into it and I definitely don't. I feel great and I feel, you know, the only day that I didn't do the tour days was the day that I was in hospital with um getting my foot x-rayed and um, I did three the next day to make up for it. But, yeah, I definitely don't feel complacent and I don't think because I said I'd do this for 30 days and, you know, maybe I'll do it longer, maybe I'll do three days, you know. I don't think that's a sustainable thing to be able to do. I don't think physically – mentally i need to do that either just yet you know I'm, I'm sure if i really really had to or wanted to train three times a day i could definitely do it but you know i think i just needed that shake up and sometimes that shake up and then a month of like you know suffering and pushing yourself forward and expanding your your comfort zone you know i might i might get to the end of the month and be like you know what i'm happy to take a month of just one a days for the next month and kick back and then maybe next month i'll do two days again who knows but it's kind of just like I don't think it's the idea of like, what's next? It's just like, all right, this isn't working. I got to shake it up. It doesn't really matter what it is. And then once I get to the end of that shake up, you know, I can, I can turn around and step forward or I can go left. I can go right. Or I can go, I can step off the cliff and do fucking 10 a days. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, for me, it's not what's next. It's just, this isn't working. I got to shake it up. And then I'll take the next step when that comes, you know, time to be taken. Got it. Yeah. So, yeah, that definitely does. You just kind of need to break away from the motions a little bit. Yeah, you got to shake it up sometimes and get in. You know, I feel I was talking to um talking to my girlfriend a little while ago about um you know, moving back to Australia and after being overseas for 10 years and and going to all the different countries and meeting all these different people and having these different experiences um and then I came back to Australia with the idea of building this building my business up and, and creating this program and everything like that i was everything was good everything was kind of normal and everything was like i couldn't fault anything everywhere but i had this realization that i'm like everything's just good like works good my house is good my roommate's good my like my life is good i can go to the beach life is good but i was like i just felt like i was missing this thing and i couldn't figure out what it was and then i read this article talking about um I don't know if it was called good versus extraordinary, but it was talking about you have to sacrifice the good life if you want to live an extraordinary life. And I felt like I'd lived an extraordinary life for the last decade and doing these amazing things. And then all of a sudden I was back to living the good life, which was good, but it was just good. You know, it wasn't, I was just like, Oh, I, I need more. So, um, you know, and I'm, I'm here to build the business and I'm back in Australia because I want to be close to my family and everything like that. But I had to mentally, consciously decide that I'm like, all right, I got to get back to live an extraordinary life. What am I going to do today to live an extraordinary life? What am I going to do tomorrow to live an extraordinary life? Or at least my subjective viewpoint of what an extraordinary life is. Um, and whether that's going on trips or that's doing the cruise, you know, um, it's just trying to bring those extraordinary things back into my life while also, you know, living the good life at the same time. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a really interesting, pers- uh, like perspective shift for me to realize that you, to live extraordinary, you have to sacrifice the good, which was like, yeah, it's kind of, it's a, it's a weird, it almost feels like privileged in a way, which kind of like, I don't think is the right term for it, but it's like, yeah, it was just a, it was a weird viewpoint for me because I couldn't figure out why I was in a bit of a rut, why I was in a bit of a funk because I couldn't fault anything in my life, but I felt like something was missing. And um, maybe as you said earlier with, before you went traveling, when you talked about your job, everything was good. You your job was fine. Money was good. The, where you were living was great, but something was missing, right? You couldn't figure out what that thing was. And for me, it was like, I got to sacrifice the good to do the extraordinary. And um, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's pretty empowering when you realize that and then you know then you just get busy trying to do the your version of the extraordinary yeah that's got to be such a like pretty extreme mind shift for you mm. after just going to all these places for 10 years and kind of having the extraordinary like as an external in a way like mm-hmm. you you don't need to create that as much cuz it's you're traveling you know you're seeing that every day or any new place yeah. you get and then from being back home where you kind of need to create the extraordinary for yourself in the day-to-day life and you know you're not going to be going out traveling every day going to see a new culture or living in a new country but where you are you have to bring that to you exactly right man that's the thing you got you have to bring it you got to create it because it's not as you said, you're not in Cusco and you're about to go to Machu Picchu for the day. Like it's like, no, you're you're in. Well, for me, I'm like I'm in Lennox Head, a population of seven thousand people on the east coast of Australia, and I'm like, you know, sometimes it can be boring. But then I'm like, I just got to look around me. I'm like, I can go surfing, I can go spearfishing, I can go climb a mountain, I can jump off waterfalls. You know, you can do all these different things, but you have to you have to go and do it. It's not going to come to you, sort of thing. So yeah, it is it is a big mind shift, yeah, to um as opposed to the whole. You know the travel where it's kind of coming to you as you walk towards it. It's like no, here you got you got to make it happen. Yeah, it's in life it's in pretty. Cr- yeah, it's pretty crazy how like any situation can become normal. Like mm, I, re- totally. I remember seeing. Um, I think it was your video the the first time you went out spearfishing and yep. to try to catch fish for your first meal, and you were going through these woods. And you're high up on this ledge and you break through the woods and you get this unbelievable view of the bay and these waves crashing on this huge beach. And I mean, your reaction said it all. You were just like, oh, like, look at this. This is incredible. And, you know, seeing that on my computer screen sitting here in snowy Chicago, I'm like, holy shit, what I would do to be there right now. Right. Yeah. You live that long enough and that's you kind of forget the wonders of that is just like, oh yeah, I live near the beach and the ocean. It's it's normal. It's my life. You just yeah. get used to that, which is such a. I mean, that can happen with any setting, but it's crazy how that does happen. Like when you first are exposed to that, how could you ever get sick of this? Yeah, exactly right, and that's, and it's that. Um, it's almost like the expectation. It's like, oh well, that's just always there, you know. So it's like, ah. Uh, and for me, I think about it when I think about. You know, I think back to Canada when you when you said snowy Chicago, I'm like, oh man, like Vancouver, the snow capped mountains, I can go snowboarding, snowshoeing, I can hike up the mountains. And I'm like, here, living on like this, you know, tropical paradise, and I'm like missing the snowy mountains, dude, because it's you know, it's not my norm. It's uh it's on the other side. So it's totally true though. You you sort of take for granted what's around you. And that that little viewpoint from that video, that's only ten minutes from my house. And I didn't oh even know it was gosh. there. So I'm just like, shit, like, and that's why as you said in the video, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, what the hell? And I'm like, how have I not seen this? I've lived here for nearly a year. I've never been up over this ridge. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good lesson in itself to show you to, you know, to, we, with travel, um, we think we have to go to the other side of the world to travel, but, you know, we can go 10 minutes from our house and find this beautiful, tiny little, you know, um, desolate beach, which is just around the corner, or you know, maybe climb a mountain and find this wicked little you know meadow that you can go and have a picnic in. There's, you know, travel doesn't have to mean going to Africa and you know doing some you know Sahara safari or anything like that. There's just there's so many different means to it. But it's yeah, it's that it's that perspective of of like looking around you. Yeah, it just doesn't have that as exotic appeal 
but yeah i know right yeah even then i'm just like oh dude i'd still rather be in the mountains oh take me to take take me to africa i'm actually going to africa in two weeks dude i'm my first time on the african yeah first on the african continent i'm uh i'm heading over to morocco on uh on the 26th of december for a nine day surf yoga and self-exploration retreat that i'm uh, i'm one of the leaders of one of the leaders of with a with a community out of Vancouver called Chasing Sunrise. And um, I'm so stoked to go on this because it's just, you know, it's something different like we just talked about. It's it's a new year. It's a new country. It's a new continent. It's my 40th country I've ever been to. And it's with some absolutely phenomenal friends of mine and phenomenal people and just a beautiful community of open-mindedness and, and exploration and, and personal growth. And, you know, you throw that in with, you know, the, the culture and history of Morocco the food um and you throw a bit of you know yoga and surf in there it's like i'm hanging out for this trip it's going to be so phenomenal that's so cool how did you manage to become like a uh leader in that i guess or a part of that yeah so the, the company's um i guess you call it a company or community is based out of vancouver as i said it's called chasing sunrise and two of my really good friends actually started it um gordon swenson and julian de and they um, are two absolutely phenomenal, like A grade humans. They're just, they're so phenomenal. And, um, I met them through, um, social media, basically. I, um, I'd lived in Canada for a while and then I was off traveling and I was, had my own blog and my, my YouTube channel and that. And Julian reached out to me and then we sort of just sparked up this sort of online friendship. And then when I moved back to Canada, I got involved, um, with their, with their events and basically what they do, you know, their tagline is like rad people doing rad shit and they just want to get the coolest people and go and do some cool stuff and have, have some wicked, like real talk. Um, and so then it's just like, what, you know, what can you dream up? And we, I got along really well with them. You know, I got along really well with people in the community and I was already up in the mountains myself. So I do, I do some guiding for them. We do hikes. We had a thing called Sunday school where every Sunday you'd meet and we go and do something pretty radical, whether it was climbing a mountain or, um, you know, we had this one little movement which was going on, which was great. It was called um, it was called Make Winter Summer Again, and it was a freezing cold winter in Vancouver, and it just it was like drizzly and snowy, and it sucked. And we were like, oh, what, what can we do? So we decided to do some activities in the winter, and we all hired. I think nearly 50 people came. We all hired like 12 mil wetsuits. We went up to the mountains in or outside of Vancouver, and we took all these floaties and we broke through the ice, and we had a summer barbecue in the snow. And just like, yeah, man, like swam in the swam in there. We did like penguin dives, and everyone was floating out in their floaties. And we did this all in massive wetsuits with hoods, and it's just like that's the kind of shit that these guys dream up, and they're just so great to be around. And yeah, so I just thrived off them, and they they really liked what I had to, I guess, to offer. And then yeah, we sort of just started guiding and helping out and dreaming up different things, and um. Yeah, and then they've sort of now expanded globally on their expeditions, and they just got back from Everest Base Camp, I think, two weeks ago, um, and they got in contact with me a few months ago, and they said, we're going to Morocco, we're doing this, um, we think you'd be really good at it, and we want you, we'd love you to be a facilitator, a leader on the, on the trip, are you available? And I was like, clear the schedule, I'm coming for sure. So um, yeah, that's how that sort of came to be, and I'm, I'm super stoked to, to get over there and see my old friends, meet meet my new friends and um, just have an experience and, and uh, you know, bring whatever I can to the party. Sweet, man. That sounds incredible. Yeah, epic, man, epic. Always got to be planning on that next trip, right? <laughs> oh, always. Yeah, speaking of, I, I might have to ask you a few questions later on uh, outside of the podcast episode because I'm going to Peru in, ah, uh, sweet. in June for the first time. So, 
yeah, I'll definitely have a few questions I could send your way if if you've lived there. Man, for sure. Yeah, I lived there for <laughs> lived there for nearly four months and um, spent a good nearly eighteen months in Central and South America, and that's just a phenomenal part of the world and such beautiful people and such raw, kind of like, kind of grimy, kind of dirty, just like just beautiful. It's just it's just a raw way of living there, and you know the people are so hospitable and they're so caring and so generous with you know the the little which they a lot of the time have and um and peru man it's just the diversity in that country in terms of things you can do like you got the mountains you got the you got the incan ruins you know you can get down to the coast you go to mancora you go to um Wanchaco and surf down there there's a massive beautiful big lefts on that side and then um you know you can come up into the colonial areas you can go to machu picchu dude it's just you can go to the amazon like that country has everything man you'll have a blast down there i'll definitely give you a uh, many as many pointers as i uh, <laughs> how long are you going for um right now about 10 days but i'm trying to figure out a way to extend it a little bit yeah. ideally it's, i could go for like two or three weeks yeah dude i always say to people i'm like how long can you go for how, like what's the most <laughs> possible i'm like and then book that because you never you never come home from a country and be like, shit, I wish I went home 10 days earlier. Like there's, and personally a country like Peru, you know, there's so much you can do. So, um, yeah, I definitely say go as long as you can and, you know, like kiss some ass, do whatever you have to and get that trip extended. But, um, if not 10 days, man, you'll still have a wicked time and still get a lot in. Yeah. I'm pumped. It'll be the first time in, uh, in South America. So definitely awesome. be a little bit of a shock. Yeah, dude. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, want to talk a little bit more about the uh, this warrior program that you've been working on, and what's like kind of the the gist of this? What what is this meant to do? I think you said it's twelve week program. Like, where what would be like the ideal person who's going into this, and like what would they expect to get out of it? Yeah, so I, I created this program. It's called the Lifestyle Warrior Program. Um, and it's run through my website, um, and or it will be run through my website once I once I complete it. And basically, I was I was doing online coaching. I was doing one on one coaching and and working with different people in in sort of the lifestyle area and sort of and it normally catered to you know health, nutrition, fitness, um, personal development, mindset, everything like that. And um, and I still do that, um, and I do enjoy it. But I really wanted to make you know, I found a lot of the time I'd be going through the same sort of thing. And I was like, there was a lot of underlying principles, which I was just reteaching over and over and over again. So I was like, I've got to come up with a way to, you know, have a system in place where I, instead of me saying the same thing over and over and over again, I can create a program and people can go work through the program at their own pace. Or, you know, they can do a coaching version with me where I work, still work with them one on one as they work through the program. So that's basically what I did. And um, I called it, as I said, the Lifestyle Warrior Program, um, and it is, it's aimed at men. It is a men's program, and the reason I chose men was because most of the people who I worked with were men, and I feel that obviously being a man, I have the most experience in the area of lifestyle um, of a guy. So I felt like I could help more more people and get more specific um, in that area, and I wanted to niche down. I didn't want to be like just a generic personal trainer or a generic lifestyle coach that's like, I can help everybody. You know, I have all the advice, come to me. And it's just, you're so watery with your, you know, with what you do. So yeah, I niched down, dude. And I niched into the men's sort of lifestyle area. Um, and so the, the it's it's basically a guide to self-reinvention. Uh, re, um, 
and it has the emphasis, the focus points on um, on the lifestyle, and it's basically nutrition, movement, and reframing your mindset and paradigm. Um, and the reason I chose them is as a personal trainer, it's so heavily orientated around fitness and body composition and physique. Um, and then obviously there's the nutrition gets incorporated in there as well. But for me, the biggest thing that I found with my clients and with myself is like, they're all very essential, but until you change the way you, until you change your behavior and you change your beliefs and you change what you believe you can or can't do and what you will or won't do, then all the rest is, it's kind of like you won't stick at it. You know, you can, you can, I can teach you how to do all the good exercises and teach you what to eat and tell you to go and do them. But if you don't do them, you're not going to get the results. And so I really had a big emphasis on the mindset module in this program. Um, so, and that was all just about reframing your mindset and your paradigm and basically, you know, your, your paradigm is, is your belief system. It's what that's how you view the world, if you will. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what the program is when it's out. It's, it's 90, I want to say 98% complete. As I said, I've been working on it all year. Um, all the theory behind it and all the actual writing of it's done. Now I'm just putting it into a workable 12 week uh, program, uh, online program and uh, getting the, the video exercise tutorials all um, edited up and then just getting into a nice workflow. So now it's like, yeah, I've done, I'm just dotting the I's and crossing the T's and um, I'm so excited to get this out because it's, it's been a lot of work and um, I think there's just such a big benefit for um, a lot of people that they could take out of it um, and improving certain areas of their life and, and everything like that. So yeah, I'm excited to get it out, dude. And, and, uh, and help out if it will. Yeah. So without exposing too much of, of the trade secrets, like how do you get people to shift their mindset? You know, if, if they've believed this one thing that's limiting what they want to possibly achieve for however many years, how do you get them to examine that objectively and say, Hey, like, maybe this isn't working in your favor and how do you kind of break that down and build it back up with something more beneficial? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the first step before you go and do anything is, is basically is the permission is the knowledge is knowing that what you've always believed doesn't have to be the thing you continue believing or doing or, you know, whatever it is in your life. And I think just giving the people the knowledge to know that just because they've always done this or they've always believed this, doesn't have to be that way. So once they sort of get permission, it's like, oh, I can, I don't have to do this or I don't have to be this or I don't have to think like this. I can actually do something else. That's what I find is the first step. So exposing them to the permission to be able to, you know, redefine, reinvent whatever word you want to use, you know, their whole ethos, their paradigm. That's for me the first step. So after I sort of expose them to that, then we go into the whole self-analysis thing and we step through and we look at, all right, what are the self-limiting beliefs? What are the things you've always done? What are the, you know, Vishen Lakiani, he's the CEO of Mindvalley. He calls them rules, bullshit rules. And he's like, what are the bullshit rules that you've believed all your life that you've inherited from your parents, that you've inherited from school, that you've inherited from your religion? He calls it the culture scape. And it's basically this whole environment of beliefs, principles, practices, everything that we, we grow up in. It's basically the nurture in, in our life. And he's like, what are the bullshit ones? What? What do you believe that you don't have to believe? Or more importantly, what do you believe that you don't want to believe anymore? So yeah, self-analysis and then working through that. And then from there, we go through the different processes of redefining the character of who you want to be. Um, and I mentioned earlier about the two selves and everything like that with the static self or the fixed mindset of like, no, I am this way and I can't change it. 
you know, that's bullshit. You can be whoever you want. You can change and you can become whoever you want to become. The question is, who do you want to become? So then it's identifying those characteristics, those traits, those different things and basically building, you know, building the superhero version of yourself, you know, you 2.0 and then stepping into that person um, and then doing that again. And yeah, man, that's, that's the basic premise behind it in terms of the mindset. And then obviously we've got the tools that are in there with the, the movement, um, the movement module, which is all based around building um, a capable body, improving the fitness of, of this machine, of the body we have. You know, what do you want to do? You know, there's, there's basic underlying principles in terms of what physical fitness is, but really it's, it comes down to the specificity of your desire. You know, do you want to be a marathon runner or do you want to be a freaking heavyweight bodybuilder that poses on stage? Because they're both they're both um, worthy but you know you have to train completely different depending on what that is so then we go into that and then obviously there's the nutrition that goes into it and just giving people an understanding on what you know the brainwashing that goes into the nutritional industry the fucking parameters that are you know we're told is healthy and you know i mentioned earlier about not conforming to one thing so i talk a lot about that in the in the program with you know and just redefining people's understanding on what nutrition actually is um, you know, what food actually is and why are we, people don't even think about it. Like, you know, why do we get hungry? Why does our body tell us to eat food? Because, you know, with, you know, the affluent society we live in, we just eat because that's what we do. We eat three times a day because that's what I've always done. And there's food in the fridge. So I go and eat, and, you know, and it tastes good. And I don't think anything more about it. But if you look down into a deeper level, it's like, why, why am I hungry? Why is my body telling me to eat food? That's because you need to fuel your body for it to have its, you know, for it to be able to function with its cellular process as well. So you can build a strong immunity, so you can resist disease, so you can resist these external stresses or anything that are coming at you, so you can get through a day of work, you know. So there's all these different things that, that come into it that I really sort of like to get deep on and sort of, you know, take off the top layer of just fluff and, you know, and, uh, and get in there. So, you know, as as I said, 230 pages, 90,000 words, that's, that's kind of the dot point as I can, as I can get into it, man. It's, it goes deep, but it's good. I'm really happy with it. Yeah. That sounds incredible. Like just to get that understanding alone is huge. Like, yeah. Once you understand something a little bit better and especially when it's something as pivotal as a certain mindset or nutrition or something that once you learn that it's like, it's hard to ignore. It's hard to just go, even if you are kind of go back to your old habits or eating crappy, it's you think about it more. You're like, hmm, yeah, you know, dude. maybe, maybe this shouldn't be how I live the rest of my life. Yeah, and you're like, ah, oh. or, or like as you said, you're like, maybe I shouldn't live like that. And then all of a sudden, or you've you've done, you know, you've done taking a few right steps, and you feel good, and you look good, and you're like, yeah, like this is this is fucking good. And then you go back to your old ways. And you're like, God, oh, I feel like shit. I've got no energy. I'm lethargic. I don't want to do this. I've got no sex drive. All these different things, right, that go on. And you're like, fuck living back here. Like, I got to go back to the, you know, whatever it is that I was doing before or like, or learn more. And yeah, for me, it's like, man, knowledge is just, it's so important. But where I think a lot of people go wrong is like, they want all the knowledge, but you know, knowledge without application or without action is just purposeless. You need it. You need to get the knowledge. You need to take masses of action, and then you can then you can reinvent yourself. Then you can change, bend, reform your reality, whatever it is. But yeah, man, it's like I'm just like this big sponge. I just love knowledge, and then taking action, and 
you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes, but I think I'd rather like, I always think of the matrix when he's like the red pill or the blue pill. And I'm like, fuck man, I'll take, I'll take the pill that brings you to the real world and deal with it there rather than just living in never, never land. Yeah, exactly. Be exposed to reality so you can prepare for it and live it to the maximum and optimize yeah. yourself for the actual real world. <laughs> yeah. And bend and bend it like, you know, change your idea of what reality is and what the parameters you set for yourself, you know, just because, you know, we believe it's a certain way doesn't actually mean that it is. And, um, yeah, you know, it's like even reality itself is, that's one thing I talk about in the program I talk about a lot <laughs> in my conversations is just this idea of what even reality is. And, you know, this could go down the rabbit hole pretty deep, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just like, just because what we see and what is around us and what has always been, you know, it does once you get into quantum physics and and the the quantum makeup of what things are, what solid objects are, you know, it's basically your whole version of reality is your brain's perception of information around it. You know, so it's not just because things are green doesn't mean they're actually green. You know, if you, you think about your brain, your brain tells you what to smell, your brain tells you what color green is, even though it's never seen green, it tells you what a tree looks like, even though it's never seen a tree. So basically all it is, is this information coming in and then it's your brain's best guess at what that information says it is. So yeah, man, like when, when I go down that, that rabbit hole, I'm just like, shit, man, like what, what even are we? Like, where are we? What's around me? It's freaking crazy. It's a bit, it's a bit woo woo, but it's, uh, it's so interesting though. Once you get into the quantum world and see that the rules of reality in the quantum world, are just so different to to our rules in the physical world, you know, at a at a macro level. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you break down into that stuff, dude, it's that'll blow dude, your mind like, just in the will. best way. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you can't even like I listened to um I listened to an audio book the other month, and it's called um Einstein's Theory of Relativity and the Quantum Mechanics, I think it was called, and it was like it was a heavy read, dude, oh, a heavy listen, I should say, but it was mind blowing. And there was even just one little insignificant thing out of it that really stuck with me and i was on the beach when i was listening to it and it talks about um talks about gravity and and like gravity and um like objective uh object mass and everything like that and the gravitational pull that different objects of different mass have and so i was talking about gravity and how it influences you know our our physical reality but what blew me away was when you think of the tides of the ocean, you know, I think about like a tide going out and tide going in. And I was just like, oh yeah, we all know like the moons control the tides and it's the gravitational pull of the moon which changes the tides. And so I'd always envision like the moon pulling the water one way and the tide goes out and then the moon pulling the water the other way and the water comes back. But what it actually is, is when the moon comes into a close realm, it's gravitational pull pulls the water up. So the tides don't go out or in, they go up or down, which was just that little like, perspective shift in my mind i was like holy shit so it's like it's the gravitational pull of the earth versus the gravitational pull of the moon and just that little insignificant thing like oh so the tides actually go up and down they don't go out or in like that just blew my mind i'd never even thought of it before and i was like on a beach looking at the tides and i'm just like what else do i have zero idea about there's so much out there it's just insane yeah that's so wild well you people always say oh the tide's coming in yeah. And I guess that's just the way we've conceptualized it. But. Yeah, it's like, oh, we can see the water coming towards us and that's, that's you know, and they, they got it right by saying high and low tide. But yeah, yeah. it's not, the, the tide doesn't go in or out at like the, the I guess, out, like, you know, the water, the, the molecules that make up water are 
either getting pulled back towards the earth and they shrink down towards the center of the earth and the tide goes down or when the moon's closer its pull is stronger so it pulls it back up away from the center of the earth and towards the moon so that's when the tides come in it's not it's not in or out it's just going up or down and like i'd never even thought of it like that and it's so insignificant but it's also like just like like blew my mind (laughs) yeah i mean just just so small little things like that you know that can have a huge huge impact on you and Mm. you know for a more like behavior type thing like your your program just allowing people just giving them the permission to hey you don't have to think this way give yourself the permission to be okay with believing something else or to test your beliefs or to challenge them just just understanding like hey this is okay that's probably going to make a huge impact alone on so many people. Mm, absolutely, man. And that was one thing I really noticed when I was writing this program and when I was doing my own like my own personal development, self-work, whatever you want to call it, was the idea of like a paradigm. And a paradigm, as we said, is, is like your belief system. It's your framework to how you view the world. I didn't even know what a paradigm was. <laughs> and, you know, I'd, never, I'd heard of the word paradigm, but I couldn't tell you what it was. And from there, I'd never ask myself, what's my paradigm? Like, what, what do I believe is right? What do I believe is correct? What do I believe is the best way to do things? What do I believe makes up the physical world, you know? So just having that question or asking that question yourself of like, what, is, what do I believe? What is, what, is, what is my framework? You know, most people don't. They'll go their whole life, living their whole life with, through the lens of this framework without even asking themselves, what is my framework? What is my paradigm? They don't even know. And so once you ask that question and you can look at it, then you can decide, fuck that. That's an absolute, that's a rule. That's a bullshit rule. I don't even believe in that. I don't know why I'm viewing the world through that, you know, or myself through that thing. So I can get rid of that. Or I read this book and this guy, he does, you know, you hear about Goggins and I'm like, that dude, you know, he, he runs, he, he did 800 mile races in, a, in eight weeks or something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, what? So I'm like, oh, all right, well, f- shit, you know, if he can do that, you know, what am I leaving on the table? I'm doing two a day is big whoop, you know? So it's just like, it just expands your, your potential, expands your idea of what your potential is, your capacity. And then you can go, all right, you know, if he can do it, I'm going to do it. Or, you know, I don't believe in that anymore. I'm going to flick that rule away and I'm going to start believing this. And obviously it's not like a split decision. I wish it was where you're just like, all right, I don't believe in that anymore. I now believe in this, you know, there's work, you know, you got to intercept those thoughts. You got to change those belief patterns. You got to do it over and over and over again until it becomes automated. But you can replace those belief systems. It's basically it's just a it's just a scale in your head of what you believe is right or wrong. You know, really there's no there's no right or wrong. It's just what you believe, and you know what you believe is is right or wrong. You know, so it doesn't it doesn't really matter what the right or wrong is or what true or not true. It just matters what you believe because with time and with work, what you believe will come true. It's just it's just the way it goes. Yeah, man, you literally have to rewire your brain, but absolutely. It's- usually worth it hopefully <laughs> always worth it man yeah always <laughs> and like yeah you might it could be ignorance like nah man i don't even think about what i believe i just do what i do and it's all well and good sweet but you know as i said sometimes once you once you ask those questions to yourself you get exposed to you know the reality of what you're actually thinking and believing mostly subconsciously because you've done it your whole life then all of a sudden you're just like oh fuck this i don't want to do this anymore or i can't do this that's a lot of the thing for me is like i can't do that anymore I can't, like when I went to vegan, it's like, I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't take the life of an animal anymore. And, you know, and then when I left veganism, it was so hard for me to leave that belief behind. 
took a long, long time for me to go through it and a lot of deliberation and thinking. And then even, I think I went fishing five times before I even took a fish home and consumed it. Cause I was just like, no, I'm still not ready for it. Like, you know, it's hard to do. It takes time, but it goes back to what we said at the start, you know, what's harder, you know, pushing through it for 30 days or whatever and getting through it or living your whole life in that, you know, ignorant state, if you will, being unaware. And for me, I'm like, nah, I'd rather, I'd rather be aware and then pick and choose what I want to do. Yeah, man, that's who I'm feeling. <laughs> We've gotten into some awesome topics and uh, man, it's been good. It's been great. Yeah. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up where we just went over the two thirty mark. Cool. Man, I haven't even eaten today. Shit. <laughs> yeah, no, I just looked at the time. I'm like, Oh man, dinner's coming up. But, um, yeah, I'm at our breakfast. Yeah. This, I mean, I feel like we're going to need to talk again because there's a lot, there's still a lot of questions I have just about some other stuff. And I mean, we can obviously get really deep into these topics more, but man, yeah, for the, for the sake of listeners, we'll, uh, we'll try to wrap it up because <laughs> I know, uh, tr- listen to a podcast for three hours is pretty difficult, but yeah, man, man. Joe Rogan pulls it off, but you know, we'll see how we go. <laughs> exactly. But Hey, if it's something that, is going to have a huge impact on your life. Like we said, those three hours, a lot better than the next years you're going to spend not living a certain way. So, Exactly right, man. I'm into that. Yeah. Um, well, hey, um, is there anything else that we haven't discussed or talked about that you want to bring up or uh, some final words to the listeners or anything? Yeah, as you said, dude, there's, there's always something else to talk about. And we definitely will have another conversation. This has been great on my end. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you and hearing your story. And, but yeah, I think, uh, as you said, two and a half hours is enough. I don't, I don't, we don't need to go down to any more rabbit holes. We can do that on another conversation, but, um, yeah, I've had a fantastic time and, and I appreciate it. And I hope that, uh, hope your listeners enjoyed it. And yeah, and I'm uh, definitely looking forward to not only the next conversation, mate, but when we get to, uh, when maybe on the same country at some stage, we can go run a half marathon and, and kick ass do a couple of tour days <laughs> hell yeah man that would be awesome um is there what is the best place for people to reach out if they have a question or just want to say hello or to check out some of your work or your program when it comes out yeah cool so everything will be announced through um through the website it's the www.thelifestyleempire.com um that's my blog it's also where i post the videos i've got my youtube channel which is just dane thomas bergman instagram is sort of my main platform instagram and youtube and that's dane thomas bergman also um facebook i don't use too much anymore i feel like that's kind of dying but um you know i'm also on there as as dane bergman as well or the lifestyle empire um it's got a page on there as well mate but that's the easiest way to reach out to me and um instagram will be your best bet if you want to get um you know a quick answer because that's where i'm i spend most of my time but I got a real big love hate relationship with social media at the moment. So I'm trying to, I do a couple of detoxes every now and then because as we talk about, I feel like I just sometimes waste my life on Facebook, on Instagram. So I try not to use it too much, but that'll be the best bet for people to get a hold of me, man. Otherwise, email through the, uh, the contact part on the website. Perfect. And, uh, yeah. Everyone give them a follow because you post some pretty inspirational stuff on your Instagram too. And just seeing, seeing the fish and the spearing you do, I mean, that's a topic that I wanted to explore a little bit more, but I'll have to save it for another because that's so cool. Like 
there's nowhere around here where I'm going out spearfishing. So that's exciting to see. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's man, it's phenomenal. And just like, it's what, that's what I love about it as well. That's why I, I, I really enjoy spearfishing as opposed, I love fishing too, line fishing, but I like how selective spearfishing is because you're actually in the water. You can choose what you're going to, you know, pursue and hunt um, and take. Um, but it also, it's, you know, it's, I feel like it's so much more primal than just sitting there and casting a line. It's like you're in the water, you know, you're holding your breath, you're diving down, you've got a spear gun, you're trying to hold your breath as long as you can and you're trying to stalk a fish and get close to it and, you know, trying to trick it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hunt. You're on a hunt and it's really, really, really cool and to be selective and to, to source your own sustenance and to, to hunt something, to catch it, to prepare it, to clean it and then to, sh- to eat it and share it with someone is just such a – I feel like it's such a, a human thing that it's, you know, it's, I just really, really enjoy that aspect of it, of, of sharing the food with someone and welcoming someone into your, you know, into your, into your environment and, you know, having a discussion or whatever you're doing. And yeah, spearfishing is good, but it's, um, you know, I was spearfishing off the coast here and it was, I was two kilometers from where there was a great white attack, just two kilometers down the beach two days earlier. So definitely has at risk, especially in Australia here. And I live in pretty much the, the shark attack capital of Australia, you know, in the Ballina the balance of waters around here but um you know it's like anything it's like driving a car there's just <laughs> the risk is so small but the 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 thought process behind it dude is just like oh god but um yeah i've i've been good so far and haven't had any too much dramas with sharks or anything like that but um yeah it's definitely a it's a phenomenal adventurous um pursuit that's for sure yeah, I hope you don't encounter any sharks because I imagine that's got to be pretty terrifying seeing one of those big ass things come out of nowhere in the water. Yeah, it's definitely not fun. I've I've seen I've seen a few sharks in my time. I've never had any trouble with them. You know, mostly reefies and whalers, and um, and I haven't had any haven't had any trouble with with uh sorry with with whites. And you know, I'd rather I'm happy to not see a white ever in my life, except maybe when I'm diving in a in a better situation than you know, in usually murky water with a whole bunch of dead fish around me. That's not the, the greatest environment to have your first great white shark encounter. So <laughs> I love sharks. I think they're phenomenal. They're so beautiful. And I'm such, I'm so in awe of the power and the, the majesty of them. But um, yeah, you know, you don't really want to see them when you're, when you're in their environment shooting fish. So. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, thanks again. This has been awesome. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed check Dane out on all his social platforms and website and until next time hey everyone Lee here again real quick hope you all enjoyed the episode and this week's question of the episode is what is a limiting belief you used to hold How were you able to change it, and how has this impacted your life today? Head to edgeofcomfort.com forward slash EOCP20, that's the number two zero, and leave your answer or your story in the comments section at the bottom of the post. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to reading your answers. Cheers! Cheers!